Good morning. Saturday, April 23, or good afternoon, Michael Howell. Um, Michael Howell is uh, no stranger to this room. We're very fortunate that Michael has uh, 30 minutes he can give us today. Um, Michael uh, is well known, having started his career at Salvin Brothers back in the 80s, having worked with Henry Kaufman, Lazo Barini, et cetera, et cetera. He really needs an introduction. He's a good friend. I've known him for decades. He's been in this room on multiple uh, occasions. He is, as I keep repeating, and I have no affiliation with Michael. I say this because I really mean it. I just try to share the wisdom that I've accumulated over the ages from people like Michael. He is the preeminent uh, expert on liquidity in the world. And I think uh, you know, one always has to pay attention to liquidity. Stan Druckermiller famously once says that you know people spend too much time worrying about earnings and fundamentals and not enough about liquidity. And liquidity is a funny, amorphous thing. It's like trying to get hold of a wet fish. You're just trying to grab a shadow. And Michael does as good a job or the be- as anybody or the best job of anyone in trying to quantify liquidity and what changes in liquidity mean for asset markets. And I've known, I've had the privilege of knowing Michael for over three decades now. He's made some brilliant calls. I'm going to tweet out uh, later. He sent me the chart, and, and Michael made in, in his Twitter feed this morning uh, a reference to, um, it, it looks like Japan, just ask George Noble. Uh, and so that probably would be a good place for Michael to start his remarks. But I think we're going through a regime change here. The tectonic plates of the financial landscape are shifting. Michael signaled this going back last fall. So he's not one of these talking heads who just jumped on the bandwagon and said, oh, it's going down, it's going down. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. He was sounding the alarms last fall. And it's not that he was right. It's that he was right for the right reasons. And it's the type of conversation, the types of things you need to talk about that you're never going to hear in the mainstream media. And so Michael's looking at, and he kind of annoys me at times. He does annoy me because he makes me think, and it's the kind of guy you got to listen to five times to get what he's saying. He'll say things like, you know, I don't really look at valuation. I just care about the quantity of money, how it's being invested. And that probably offends the sensitivities of most of us in this room. It's like, what do you mean you don't care about PE ratios? Well, I've learned the hard way over the years to pay attention to Michael, which is why I shamelessly sing his praises in Twitter. So, Michael, I'm not going to go any further because I know you're limited with your time. And, you know, with that buildup, sorry to <laughs> sorry to put you in a tough place, but I really mean it with all sincerity. And, and, and thank you all for coming to this room. I think this is going to be one of the most important rooms of the entire year. So, Michael, with that, the floor is yours. Good. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks, George. What, what an introduction. I don't know if I can beat that, but uh, let, me, uh, let, let me sort of step up to the bar and see if I can uh, say something about the, these markets. I think the main thing is that liquidity is what drives financial markets in, in many dimensions. And investment managers uh, and investors generally have got to get a handle on really what's, uh, what the liquidity backdrop is. Where is the money and where is it going? Where is the world money? Where is the global money? And where is, what direction is it taking? And I think if you, you know, if you step back and you go back 10 years or a little bit more to the GFC in 2008, one of the things that really came out clearly there was the Federal Reserve had lost control of the U.S. dollar credit system. And basically, one of the results was that the system derailed. There was just too much credit growth. Uh, we saw what happened. Um, 
basically there was, uh, you know, excess in the system and that excess uh, ended in a significant financial crisis. Ever since that date, the Federal Reserve in particular uh, has basically muscled forward and got control back of the system. And if you try and quantify that, on our estimation, the Federal Reserve has got something like three times the muscle power today that it had in 2008. And that's something that you've really got to remember, because the Fed now has got the bit between its teeth and it's seeking to get rid of inflation. And what it means is there's going to be a significant tightening out there. And I think you can see some of the corollaries of that already because the dollar wrecking ball is starting and that is swinging and it's already taken out the yen. It's putting a lot of pressure on the Chinese yuan. Uh, Sterling's had a difficult week uh, and the euro may be next in the firing line. So what we're going to see here are the uh, just joining the dots. Now, let me say a little bit about one, what is liquidity? Why is it important? What are the things that we're watching and what's the outcome? In terms of liquidity, what do we mean? As George says, it's a kind of slippery concept. It's not money supply. Money supply is a, an archaic definition of the liabilities of retail banks. Uh, liquidity is nothing like that. Liquidity uh, really starts where traditional money supply measures basically end. And what we mean by liquidity is the ability to change one's positioning, uh, particularly in asset markets. And that depends a lot on wholesale money flows and the sort of things that we're watching are things like Federal Reserve or central banks in general, how much liquidity they put into the system. We look at what the banks and the shadow banks doing, particularly in the wholesale markets. And we look at cross-border flows. And that total uh, of liquidity is something like globally about $175, $180 trillion. And benchmark that against world GDP, which is under $100 billion. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a big number. This, is, uh, this means a lot. And it's got high velocity. So what we're looking at and we're tracking uh, on a monthly basis are these flows. Now, why does, it, why does it matter? It matters because initially these flows basically drive Forex fixed income and later equity markets and later still the real economy. And what you've seen already, particularly in the fixed income markets, are the very, very clear signs that liquidity is, getting, is creating a problem. And the two things that I would cite is to look through a lot of the conventional narrative about the yield curve inverting or whatever. And some people say, does it matter? Yes. Does it matter? No. There's a range of opinion. What really matters in terms of looking at the term structure, particularly in the U.S. Treasury market, which is the key market worldwide, is to look at a decomposition of the term structure in terms of two halves. And that's what we used to do at Salon Brothers, and that was absolutely key to understanding it. The traders instinctively had this view. What you would look at is the front end of the curve, say the one to three year. And that's telling you the steepness and the strong steepness of that curve is telling you that rates are going to punch up significantly in the US. The Fed means business is getting aggressive. Uh, Bullard's floated 75 bips at the next meeting. It's pretty much nailed on. You're going to get 50, I think, given what Powell's already saying. So this is the first of many rate hikes. Um, and the next thing to say is if the front end is steepening, what's happening to the back end? We'll look at the 5-10 spread. OK, now you'll see that the traditional 10-2 straddles these two areas of the curve and it gives a distorted message. You've got to look at the yield curve or the term structure in terms of two halves. The second half is giving a really ominous message. And what you're getting is a significant flattening at the back end of the curve. So in other words, tens are trading below fives. 
And what that's telling you is that risk appetite of investors is collapsing. They're basically seeking out uh, safe assets in the system, which is the, the sort of the 10-year the bond, the 10-year note, rather, in the US, the treasury note. That's the key safe asset that everyone gravitates to it when there's problems. Now, you're seeing that happening. So you've got two things going on simultaneously. The front end of the curve is steepening fast. It's saying that the cost of financing, particularly around the three to five year area, is skyrocketing, uh, particularly for corporates who issue in that space. It's a problem. And secondly, the appetite for any risky debt is collapsing. So it's going to be really hard to get corporate issuance away. And look how much in a number of markets corporate issuance has just completely dried up. It's a really difficult market. That is the beginnings of big problems in financial markets, uh, other financial markets, and in the real economies. A recession, I think, is pretty much nailed on. I don't think it's going to be a bad recession, but it will be a recession, and the markets are not discounting that. The key fact is that the Fed really matters here. The Fed has got a lot of muscle, and it's basically taking liquidity out of the system. Look on, on our Twitter feed, which is cross-border cap. That's the handle. And you'll see a lot of charts we've put up which correlate the movement of Fed liquidity injections with the markets. Uh, it's almost one for one and has been uh, over the last three or four years. Uh, what they're doing now is they're clearly taking money out. And last uh, week was a big drop in terms of the effective liquidity injections that the Fed uh, has been putting into markets. And that's why you're getting really difficult closes on Wall Street. Uh, it's it's going to get worse than this. Now, I drew the parallel today. Uh, as this feels to me a lot like Japan in 1989. And, you know, George is the expert, so let's defer to George in a moment. But, you know, I remember I was there. And one of the things that spooked everybody was that Mieno, who was the Powell equivalent, the head of the Bank of Japan, basically said uh, in the middle of 1989, uh, we're going to kill inflation. And everyone said, well, hey, well, there's no inflation really in Japan. What are you going to kill? And he said, we're going to kill service sector inflation. And everyone scrambled around and said, well, we've never seen no one's got an index of service sector inflation. What's he talking about? But that was really the beginnings of a very significant tightening by the Bank of Japan that went on for years and propelled the yen a lot higher. Now, the question that we've got to ask here is, is this going to happen to the dollar? Now, the dollar looks expensive, but that doesn't mean to say it's going to go down. It may get a lot more expensive. And if you're getting a significant tightening in the US, you've got turmoil in Europe, you've got uncertainty in Asia, uh, you're going to get a lot of money coming into the dollar as safe haven, in my view. And basically, uh, the dollar could move a lot from here. That's putting pressure on the yen. And maybe there's a subtle agenda here. Who knows? And maybe the Treasury is trying to straight shake the tree and put pressure on China. And that, if that is the tactic, it's kind of working because the Chinese yuan has had the worst week it's had all year. Uh, it's starting to weaken significantly. And if you get a weak yuan in China, the Chinese are going to have to do something because they've been targeting the currency for the last five years. They'll break their stability, their notional stability pact on the currency. And that could be very, very serious. So in other words, what I'm saying, and let me uh, maybe stop after this and see if people have got questions or George has got comments. What you tend to find in financial markets is kind of like what we used to call in Salomon Brothers, uh, a law of cons conservation of volatility. You get volatility in one market area say, the fixed income markets, it migrates into the bond markets, and then it ends up in the equity markets. And we're seeing that kind of movement going on right now. There's been a lot of bond market vol, 
you've seen pick up in currency vol um, and now equities are in the sights. And that's what I would be very wary of. The last comment I'll make is that we've been saying, look, if you get a straightforward monetary tightening, the market's down 15 percent. If you throw in a recession, it's 30 percent down. And if you get banking crisis on top, it's 50 percent down. Now, my bet is we're in the middle of that. We're basically uh, we're recession plus monetary tightening. So I think the market's down 30. So that means another 20 from here. Michael, thank you for thank you for that cogent tour de force. A few questions. I know you have a hard stop uh, in 16 minutes at 4.30 your time, 11.30 our time. Uh, if there are any questions, please. I see Shrub, Tommy Thornton, Jeff Garbaz, Jeff, whoever wants to ask a question. We have limited, Michael has limited, limited time here. So, Michael, um, coming back on a couple of the points that you raised, um, you think you're, t- you're going to take the middle the, the middle scenario um, that we've got maybe another 15 or 20 percent down uh, in, in, in markets um, for the individual investor. Um, what would you be telling him to do? I mean, is, is, is cash as, a, as an active asset allocation decision, actually U.S. dollar cash? Is that what you would be telling people to do? Yeah, I think U.S. dollar cash makes sense. I think that um, you want to be at the front end of the of the term structure. Uh, that to me makes sense. I mean, it may even be worth, uh, you know, taking a little bit of a punt as a bar- barbell strategy of looking further out. Um, you know, maybe maybe start to look at something like a ten year. I mean, just put your toe in the water. But you know, I think that there's a there's a possibility if we get recession that you could be seeing a significant rally at the long end of the market. And there's you know, there's no major institution that I can think of anywhere worldwide that's currently overweight fixed income. So, Michael, um, you know, it's watch what people do, not what they say. One of the things that's really got me hot and bothered lately is the misuse of sentiment data in FinTwit um, right. to invoke that quote from Walter Deemer, somebody to the effect, it's not when people turn bearish that counts, it's when, it's when they're done selling. And if right. you look, we've just now had two back-to-back uh, weeks, we've had two weeks of, of significant outflows um shrub was in the room as the expert on this stuff i think there was 13 13.8 billion the week before and 20 billion through the week to wednesday taken out of uh, u.s uh, uh, equity funds if i'm not mistaken but that comes on the back of and the, the statistics are somewhat subject to to, to debate because double counting or whatever but on the official statistics there was more than a trillion dollars that went into u.s equities uh in in 2021 so if you look at uh, and I know you're not a fan of sentiment, but if you look at positioning, could you mm-hmm. please speak to, because you had some really brilliant charts. I remember a couple of days ago, you showed relative to the money stock and positioning, you know, you were trying to like extrapolate, you know, where things should go. So as far as positioning goes, do you think the positioning is still all wrong? Yeah, I think that, uh, I think if you look at positioning, I mean, you're absolutely right to say what's go- what's been going on here is that uh, a lot of investors have been shifting out of fixed income. Now, even if they have not been redeploying that into stocks, and there is evidence that some of it has been redeployed to stocks, the fact is that the asset allocation uh, with that declining bond position is becoming more, more, uh, you know, uh, more skewed towards risk uh, because the equity portion has stayed pretty much intact, let's say. Fixed incomes come down. So essentially people implicitly are taking more risk in that equation. They've taken bonds to be the risky asset when actually equities are. Now, if you look at our position, we do positioning data uh, for about 25 markets worldwide. And if you look at the, the positioning data, 
uh, and let me just sweep across the world. If you look at the the one market where positioning looks okay, in other words, investors have got a lot of safe assets but not many risk assets. Ironically, it's China right now, but then China's had a bear market for a year uh, to actually get into this 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 zone. Um, so China looks okay. The US is above average, but it's not anything like as above average as other markets. Uh, so in other words, the risk positioning is above normal, but it's not that extreme. Uh, where you've got extremes are in uh, mainland Europe, so the Eurozone area, uh, which actually, <laughs> you know, bizarrely has gone up uh, ever since the Ukraine invasion, uh, which is mystifying. Uh, but that, that's that's what's happened. And then if you look at um, emerging Asia, uh, there's also quite a lot of high, very high risk positioning. Uh, so that, those are the areas that we think are most vulnerable. But then again, you've got, you know, the if you go within sectors, I mean, things like tech, long duration areas, uh, are really going to get nobbled as, as well. So I'd be really careful uh, about some of these areas. So, you know, but, your, your your favorite stock, ARK, has probably got, you know... There you go. Difference. All right, so I, I have one more question for now, and then I want to go to John Roke. Um, one of the things I found particularly noteworthy that wasn't the focus of attention for investors, I mean, everyone's, you know, wants to jump out the window, they see the indices going down. But I really know, I, I note with interest... Um, What's been happening to bond yields and the dollar and the oil price despite all this? I mean, bond yields, a 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was hardly down. I think it was close to 290 yesterday or something like that. The dollar made an all-time, made, made a new local high. The oil price was down. What was more interesting was the, the action in, in the oil stocks that got destroyed. But normally the relief valve, when you have, you know, you have risk off, you'd expect bonds to rally, yields to fall. That hasn't been happening. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There's a reason it's happening, because the whole reason the market's going down is because yields are going up. And I suspect we're in the midst of the throes of regime change. So do you just like, you know, it wasn't just Japan went down. We go back to 1990, the way back machine. We were going through a regime shift. And you and I have talked a lot about the specter of possibly sustainably higher inflation, et cetera, et cetera. But the question really is, and I accuse myself, others of rambling, but there is a question here. Um, the fact that you have huge risk off, but bonds don't really go up at all. I mean, to me, that's telling you all you need to know. And I, I, I think, I think equities have been given a death sentence. I mean, how would you, how would you respond to that? Well, if that, if you're, if, if what you're saying is the outturn, you're absolutely right because that, that's really what matters for equity valuations in the medium term. I mean, one of the reasons that I would still say from a secular point of view, I'm still relatively upbeat on stocks, is the fact that I think the bond yields will come back again uh, to sort of around, let's say, two, two and a half percent. That's what I, I, w- I would envision. And the reason I say that is that I don't think inflation is an embedded problem as far as I can see. And the reason for that is that my view about what drives inflation is that inflation is less of a monetary phenomenon and much more of a real economy phenomenon. And you've got a, a very different dynamic in Western economies now with aging with aging populations. And that that's really the, you know, the the key factor that will cause inflation uh, or likely cause inflation to come down in the medium term. But, you know, that is that is then now is now. And I think the issue to find out or to ask is why is it that the fixed income markets are not rallying when you expect so? I think part of the reason is that people are not discounting, um, you know, a, a recession They'll rally hard when that recession comes. The beginnings of that process is underway. And the reason I say that is just look at term premia. 
which you can proxy by this 10 year minus five year spread term premium absolutely collapsing uh, in the US Treasury market. And that's telling you that nobody wants risk. Now, if it were not for the fact that rate expectations were going up at the same time, what you'd see is a strong rally in the bond markets already. So you need those rate expectations to stop going up to enable the US Treasury market to rally. And I think that my view is that, you know, latest expectations, I think, is terminal Fed funds at about three and a quarter or thereabouts uh, as of last night, or circa that level. Uh, that's probably as far as they can get. I mean, I'd be surprised if the Fed manages to get that far because there's so much debt out there that the system is just very fragile. And as I keep saying, you know, this system is a refinancing system, not a new financing system. You've got to roll over 300 trillion of debt every year. Uh, sorry, every, you've got 300 trillion of debt, which is 60 trillion every year. And that's a lot of balance sheet and liquidity uh, needs uh, there. So in my view, the Fed is going to be lucky to get rates up as much as the market's thinking so far. All right. I, I just want to ask a question. I'm going to go to John because you just said something that, that peaked, well, touched one of my hot buttons. I've been saying for months now, I mean, I never, I mean, I've been advocating, you know, I was taking the over on, on oil and, and, and rates and the whole, and the whole bit. Um, I've been saying for months, one of the reasons I believe that just forget about the inflation for a second, that's sort of Captain Obvious page one, you know, first order thinking was the idea that um, balance sheets in the corporate and consumer areas are much stronger than they were in the last cycle. So you had People say oh, all the hysterical handwring. Oh, look at what happened in 2018! And you know, they want to take 50 billion a month, and they're going to they only could do so many rate increases or whatever, and they had to stop. The whole thing's going to break. Yes, they're going to keep increase raising rates until something breaks. I get that. But the question I have for you is like, what's the strike price on that? I.e., if and maybe this is outside your purview, but given the balance sheets in the corporate and and, and and consumer area are much much better shape than were in the last cycle. What does that say about possibly the, the ability of the real economy to withstand higher rates more readily than would have been the case three or four years ago? So people who are taking their 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 their, their cue from 2018, yeah, history history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, and they may be reaching the wrong conclusion. I.e., I don't think there's a single person in this room except for John Roke, who's been calling for three percent rates for months now. Uh, maybe there were some others around, but nobody came out of the closet. I've been calling for higher rates. Roke's been calling for higher rates. It surprised everybody, I think probably even John and myself, that we've gotten here as quickly as we have. So you have to ask yourself, why is this happening? Is it is it is it an overreaction? Is it negative convexity? Blah, blah, blah. So two questions. A, what do you think of the ability of the economy to withstand higher rates more readily than the talking heads would have you believe? And, and, and therefore, you know, the strike price at which uh, we're going to have this refinancing crisis May not happen, you know. Let, let's say the tenure goes to three and a half or four. Yeah, and, and we don't no, have I, a blow. I mean, and we don't have a blow up. And if that happens, then you, you know, do I hear twenty dollars on Arc? So what would you say about that? Yeah, I think that. I mean, that that's clearly a possibility that the real economy is more robust. I don't think financial markets are as robust, and that's why I think the problem is, and that's where you're going to see the tension. So I, 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 I hear what you say. It's it's possible. On the other hand, to play devil's advocate, if you look at a lot of leading indicators, so you look at um, you know some of the uh, future expectations that came out of the Michigan survey, that came out of the Philadelphia Fed survey, came out of the New York Empire State survey, the future expectations have basically all been crushed. So it looks as if uh, uh, you know the average business and the average consumer uh, is is not looking at the future very positively, and that cannot be good. The second thing is that the distribution 
of balance sheet uh, health may be highly, highly skewed. So the averages may hide quite a lot. And if you look at um, you know, what the, the United Nations published an index of world food prices, that index has doubled, so 100% up since the beginning of 2020. That's going to hit a lot of low-income families uh, right across the world. Uh, in Europe, in the US, uh, you know, and in uh, you know Africa, Asia, etc. So this is a this is a, a meaningful factor. And if they're spending on food, they're not spending on other stuff. Um, so that that's uh, that's another issue. So I would that I would tend to look at that. But I hear what you say. Maybe the real economy comes out of this better. It means that the Fed can keep going for longer, or will have to keep going for longer. Uh, in theory, but the, whether the financial markets can take it is an entirely different matter. Yeah, and, 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 and I agree. I take your point 100%. And whether for, for the nuance on the nuance, say we get the, say we get the slowdown, but last I checked, the Fed's not able to produce more oil or grow more wheat. So what if we get slowing growth and the inflation data, okay, maybe it's peak, but it comes down at an agonizingly slow pace. And to the extent that it's viewed as a political liability right now because the the poll ratings for biden are very low okay they get the slower growth but if but but, but if the target of their affection or disaffection is inflation then they've got a devil's choice between tightening further into a big economic slowdown um you know or trying to kill inflation so i mean how would you how would you say if they're faced with that dilemma that maybe we get a slowdown but inflation doesn't come down as, as quickly as, as as they would desire what would you say to that well i think it's a I think that the choice they're making from listening to the ret- the, the changing rhetoric of uh, central bank speeches, not just in the US, but also in Europe, too, is that they're starting to warn the public that this may be recessionary. Uh, the Bank of England did that uh, uh, on Friday of last week. So let's just listen out for the Fed governors in the next couple of weeks ahead of the next FOMC and see if they start cushioning the market uh, or, or consumers to say, look, uh, we may we may be getting closer to recession here. Uh, in other words, what that's telling us is they've got the bit between their teeth and they're going to go and kill inflation. I mean, I think that on paper we're looking at one of the sharpest tightenings that we've uh, you know we've seen for a long, long, long time, uh, and it's akin to what. That's why I go back to Japan. It's akin to what Miyano did in Japan. He really slammed the brakes on, and everyone said this is crazy. You know, you know no, he's not going to persist. It's going to take the you know take the break the break off soon. He didn't. And how long did that go on for, George? I mean, that was three, four years. Yeah, and Michael, more importantly, for, again, if we're worried about our, our bank accounts, or, or they, that was one hell of a bear market. I mean, you know, the S&P, look, we can get into composition, all that nonsense, fine. But markets, in my view, have a hell of a long way to fall right here. And, and you know, I've been continually describing equity markets is representing return-free risk, and I still maintain that position. All right, you only have, and so John Roke is up to speak. John's a big basketball fan. So, John, I'm giving you the two-minute warning. Two minutes. Two minutes left to go in the game. Oh, thanks, George. Uh, Michael, thanks very much. It was uh, great getting the education while you were speaking. I have, um, I have two questions for you. Um, each of the 14 prior rate rise cycles have caused some financial calamity and something to break. We're in the 15th rate rise cycle. Is it going to, in your opinion, break first in the currency market? Is it going to break in the uh, sovereign debt market or is it going to break in equities? Well, I think that uh, I think from the uh, I would say traditionally in terms of what the what the central bankers think of, they, they don't really care that much about stocks. We'll see whether this particular 
uh, Federal Reserve Board, uh, you know, takes takes it more seriously. So I think you've got to start looking at the sovereign debt markets, the corporate debt markets, which has been the fact, which has been the one thing that's always spooked the Federal Reserve. Uh, that's what that's what they've normally uh, that that's what's caused them to blink is when you get serious problems in U.S. corporate debt, because the corporate debt market is a major, major financing vehicle in the U.S. As you know, it's it's much less in other markets. Uh, so that's the key thing that they watch. I would be I'd be looking at those spreads to see how much they balloon out. And I think there's a real risk of that happening. So I'd be looking there uh, as regards the dollar. That's the other area that I think is is something to watch very closely. And I must say, I've been sort of lukewarm about the dollar for a for a while now, because the last decade has seen a perfect storm of capital inflow into the US, which has pushed the dollar above its fair value. And I, you know, while I accept that, the question is, there is, there's got to be some mean reversion. But what we're into now is a new game. And the Federal Reserve's uh, sudden alacrity of t- with which is tightening and the scale of its potential tightening is going to make every other uh, economy blink. Uh, you know, the, the Europeans are dithering. Uh, the Japanese don't want to tighten. The Chinese, you know, well, maybe they're out of it in a way, but they, they, they would find it hard to tighten more, I think, now. So if the Federal Reserve does it, it really pushes the dollar up and it causes a lot of problems in international markets, as far as I can see, because all these other guys will start having to chase the Fed. And that's going to cause, uh, you know, a global catastrophe. And then the Fed's got to start to think about, you know, what do we do here? Uh, who do we allocate our dollars to? Now, that might be and this is sounding terribly Machiavellian and maybe completely off, uh, you know, off the script. But is this what they're trying to do? Is this part of their capital war against uh, China and against Russia uh, and Iran, etc.? Is it what they're trying to say is that we're going to try and uh, push the dollar up, create a crisis? And then all these other countries are going to come begging for dollars because they need dollars for their financial system. And we can ration in the idea of our swap lines between friend and foe. Now, you know, who knows? Who knows? Okay, Michael, I have a second question. I promise, George, I'm going to get it in under the shot clock. Here goes. Dollar yen is at a 20-year high. I think something has to give. And dollar China, as you noted early in your, uh, in your intro, has moved sharply higher. How can we have, at the same time, yen devaluation and yuan devaluation? Thank you very much, George. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. I'm going to turn off now. Thank you. OK, well, I think the I think the the one of the things to take a look at is I mean, this is um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to go slightly over my uh, my 30 minute allocation. But one of the things to take a look at is what the Asian currencies have been doing over the last five to six years. Uh, back in 2016, there was a, a deal that uh, Bloomberg or Reuters uh, basically publicized, which was called the Shanghai Accord. It wasn't public, but it was basically a, a, a sort of an agreement, a shadow agreement among the G20 to try and uh, take some of what was then upward momentum out of the dollar. And out of that, you see tremendous stability in the Asian currency units uh, against each other, but also against the major crosses. And that was really being led by the Chinese. Now, if you look at the if you look at a basket of Asian currencies over that last five or six year period, there is virtually no volatility in in that basket at all. They've de facto created a, uh, an Asian euro. Now, that that may well be a problem in itself, uh, because the uh, I guess the idea was that they were going to start to 
uh, move closer to the Chinese yuan uh, in that process. And maybe the whole uh, idea of this is to try and break that link. I, I just don't know. But one of the things that, uh, you know, to come back to this explicit question, what you can see is uh, what you've seen as a big devaluation of the yen against the US dollar. And by implication with the yuan held against the dollar until you know last week, you were seeing basically a big devaluation of the yen against the yuan, which is uncomfortable for China. And that may be the factor that's really putting a lot of pressure on China. Uh, it's a little bit less, or we'd say it's equally uh, the yuan dollar cross, but it's also the yuan yen cross that matters to them. And that, I think, is going to cause them either to tighten, we'll see uh, if they do that. Uh, they haven't done it yet. And we look at China on a daily basis. There's no evidence that they're uh, throwing towel in and, and uh, tightening or they let the uh, the yuan uh, devalue further. And maybe it goes up to seven. That's uh, that's a distinct possibility. I think with the yen or the Japanese markets, what I think they've got to do is to allow the long bond uh, to start moving up now. And I think that, you know, in a way, you're, you're beginning to see uh, the ability for them to do that because inflation looks as if it's getting some traction in Japan. Uh, and that would be the excuse they need. But, you know, basically, uh, rates everywhere, I think, are starting to move up. There is a big monetary tightening going on here, and it's being led by the Fed. And the Fed has a lot, lot more muscle than it had uh, 12 years ago in 2008. So, Michael, you've been very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. So I guess this is to sum that all up for, again, to make it relevant and actionable for the average investor in the room. You're, you're suggesting that sort of a defensive posture is warranted. Continue to, to continue to argue for that. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what, what I'd be looking at, I mean, this, this is the investment zone that we call turbulence in our, in our strategy work. Uh, basically, liquidity conditions are below average and falling. And in that environment, what you want is basically defensive, uh, defensive stocks. You want uh, uh, things like branded names. You want you know, more utilities, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, you don't want to be in, in the tech space or anything, which is long duration. Uh, you want to have U.S. dollar cash. Uh, and you want to be, you know, at the front end of the yield curve, beginning to nibble uh, at the back end. Got it. Thank you, Michael. You've, it's, you've, it's really great on a, a sort of hastily arranged ad hoc basis. Really, really appreciate it. Always, I hope you'll keep coming back to this room and keep tweeting. You've helped so many investors. So that's fantastic. So ha have a great time with the better half and hope to hear from you again soon. Great. Be well, Michael. Thanks, Be well. thanks for that's, that's great. George. That's great. George. Well done, George. Right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so let's go to some questions now. Um, we've got a couple of uh, folks coming up on stage, and I see a lot of friends in the room as well. Uh, Shrub, if you want to weigh in on the uh, weekly uh, fund flows data, that'd be great. Please raise your hand. Uh, I see Mark Newman is there. So here we go. So Shrub, since we're talking about liquidity and flows, I can't think of any better one better to speak on this because you watch the uh, flow data like a hawk. Maybe you could elaborate on what you're seeing and also – from where you sit, because you've had a very, uh, you and I have looked at markets in a pretty similar vein, your reaction to Michael's comments and how you're thinking about the world. Thank you, Shrub. Yeah. Hi, George. Thank you very much again for doing this. So look, um, first of all, your spaces have been invaluable both to me and for, I think, uh, a lot of investors out there because we've been brainstorming about this for the last three months. So I think when you brainstorm on something, you're ready when it happens. So for the last three months, I was coming in and I was saying, oh, you know, inflows, 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 what the hell is going on? What is going on? And then suddenly last week, we had the best, the first big outflow. And then this week, we had 19 billion of outflows 
and that's the largest outflow we've had a, a, in a week since February 2018. So it's very significant, and uh, you know it goes back to Walter Deemer's uh, quote that you know people have to almost print and put on their table. <laughs> um, that people have to sell when they have to. Uh, so this this is like uh, I posted a picture of an iceberg because this is how people should be thinking about this. You've had um, Mike Green before, and he's a very smart guy, and I really respect him. And he's been going on about passive strategies. And the way we should think about this is we had a trillion dollars coming in the market in the last uh, you know since COVID, uh, and we've only had. 30 billion of outflows last couple of weeks, 30, 40 billion. So you should think about it like the tip of an iceberg unless it turns. Um, and this is a scary part because valuations can be exaggerated on the way up, but they can be exaggerated on the way down. So if I was an equity bull in the tech space, what I would be really scared right now is I would be looking at Facebook trading at 12 times earnings. And then I would be looking at all the shit that uh, ARK has that has no earnings or very high multiples. And I would be really scared because if Facebook can trade at 12 times earnings, then you know, all these other stocks should be trading at uh, you know, below 20 times earnings too. So again, the passive flows, they exaggerate on the way up, but they exaggerate on the way down as well. So this is, this is uh, something to bear in mind. Um, like I said, the outflows, uh, to your point as well about credit, because credit has been having consistent outflows. The one area, with, you, you remember actually, for me and you, where I raised the red flag on the positioning was when credit kept having outflows every single week. And I said, when does credit impact equities? You know, when is uh, you know, the tail that wags the dog? When, when does credit actually impact the equity, uh, you know, wake up the equities? And that was the big red flag. Uh, and then on Friday, we had a big risk-off day, and bonds didn't do anything. So there's still really no, not a bid for bonds. And you know, we're, I'm getting tempted to buy. Michael said it, that you, know, you have to start, start thinking about buying bonds. But there's a big problem here, um, with, which uh, I identified with, a, with my smartest macro friend that runs uh, you know, a big fund. And he, he mentioned something that no one is really talking about. Um, if you go and study the bank results, the, the, the major bank results, U.S. bank results, he noticed that the U.S. banks uh, haven't bought any treasuries the last quarter. And I think this is really, really important. And he's actually he was raising it as a major concern because the major buyers of treasuries are China, and China has its own problems. And also there's a geopolitical aspect to it, which I think is maybe China is going to question uh, any strong purchases. And the second one is U.S. banks, and they haven't bought any bonds. Um, and there's many reasons for that. One reason is they took a hit on their book value because their, their existing bond portfolios took a hit this quarter. And the second thing is they don't know where it bottoms. So why would you as a bank go and allocate capital Especially when you can buy the front end, you can buy the front end and make as much as you can do in the long end. So why why take the duration risk? So that's sure. Yeah, Shrub, hundred percent on that point. I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, let's just go a little deeper on that. 
So you have had the foreigners who used to be huge buyers of the U.S. bond market basically not buying. I, I, you have the flow data. I, I just know they're not big buyers. I can't remember if they're small yeah, buyers they're small or small buyers, sellers. Yeah. But, okay, they're small buyers. So you got from being big buyers or small buyers. You have the ongoing price insensitive force buyers, the sort of li- liability matching guys. And, and Michael Howe has talked about that in past rooms. You know, to 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 meet obligations, people buy bonds no matter what. They immunize their 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 bond portfolios. That's fine. Okay, forget about them. But you have two sources of buying power, three actually: the foreigners, the banks themselves, and now if if the Fed walks the walk, doesn't just talk the talk, they're going to go from buying bonds to selling bonds. Okay. okay okay so imagine okay so shrub do you you you, you want so i started the sentence you want to complete it (laughs) so look this is the problem i mean i was having this discussion with the guy and it's like well china's out the u.s banks are out um (laughs) the u.s treasury thinks they're gonna things they're gonna tighten by a trillion or two so who's gonna be buying it it's a shrub, you know. It's a shrub, you know. They're, they're, they're like, <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, but it's the biggest market in the world, and people are fucking around trying to call the bottom on like stupid tech stocks. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know, shrub. Why are you? Why are we finding this so funny? I don't know. Whatever. Um, I mean, you know what? Just stop right there. Just stop right there. Because I want, I want Mark Newman to weigh in because he has an opinion on this, and he usually can see things that I can't see. So, Mark, are you there? Mark Newman, can you can, can you yeah. weigh in? Hi, hey George. Yeah. But George, you got to promise not to be triggered by things I say this week. All right. I, I, I promise, Mark. I promise. So I well, I'll circle back to some of the other things, and I'll hit the current topic right here. So there is some group, some swath of investors that probably has to be an indiscriminate buyer of bonds. At some point, maybe it's the pension guys, maybe it's the insurers, but they have to. That could be a source. I'm not saying, look, you guys pointed out a ton of selling pressure. I'm saying one buyer could be that indiscriminate bond buyer who has no choice in the portfolio balance world to buy. I'm just saying that's, you know, inflows into pension funds, bond funds, insurance like funds types. Those are the ones who are indiscriminate buyers have no choice. Is it enough to offset the deluge? Well, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but George, I will say you. We remember, like, as soon as things looked sort of most dire in the rates world, like with the problem of backdrops in Japan that we saw, rates would inevitably stop and 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 reverse. Now, I think we're in a different market structure here, so I don't know that that really applies. But um, that's my point on the bonds. I had some other things I wanted to chat on, but. There are some indiscriminate bond buyers who have to are forced buyers. Yeah, yeah, no, Mark, no, that, that's right. I think we talked about it. The problem is the size of that pool. Listen, the indiscriminate guys, like they're not price sensitive. Just because the price is, I mean, okay, so the price has gone down, they'll buy some more because they can they can immunize more of their portfolio, but not a lot more. And so the thing is, like you know, you know, Mark. I mean, you're you're a trader. You've been in markets for years. If you know there's a ton of supply coming you kind of fade the bid a little bit. And so you, so to me, if you could talk about growth, this is where I think the disconnect is. People talk about growth, but the real issue is inflation. And yes, growth will correlate sometimes more, sometimes less with inflation. 
But if the app, but the, but the target of affection of the Fed is inflation, and let's just say hypothetically, it's things like you know, it, it's things like extractive industries, like energy, uh, it's it, it's food. Um, the Fed can't fix that, and so you could have a slowdown where, as opposed to other scenarios where it was where, where inflation was a much more demand problem, this is a supply side problem. So you could get so just because you get slowing growth. Doesn't mean you're gonna get that slow down inflation the way people people say. So George, there's not a ton of defense for stagflation. There just isn't. Right. Okay, but let me take it one step further. And then once you say, okay, well, so whatever inflation is gonna be, so so let's say, you know, economy slows down, inflation comes down some, whatever. We're then coming out of an environment where you've had real rates at absurdly low levels. So part of this move has just been about the re- the normalization of real interest rates. And so I just, you know, everyone likes to try out these equity risk premium charts and trying to justify that stocks are cheap relative to like the lowest interest rates you've ever seen in history. Well, look how that calculus has changed in the last few months just because rates have gone through the roof. Forget about the fact earnings estimates are, are now in the process of rolling over. And I would invite Michael Kantowitz to come up because he's very eloquent on this topic. So I don't know, Mark, I, I just keep coming back to equities represent return free risk. Totally. Like, and look, like here's I wrote, I was talking about this the other day. S&P, I think the PE is around 21, 22-ish, whatever. It, think about where the 10-year is now versus where SPY was back in 2018, right? We're back there, and I think the SPY was almost half of where it is roughly here. So there's massive um, expansion, right? The question is, if rates continue to be firm here, are we, are, I asked someone this morning, are the days of single digit, like near the bottom, single digit PEs, is that gone for good? Is that gone for good? And by the way, just going to liquidity, um, I can remember, it's one of Peter Lynch's uh, in-stock speeches. He talks about in the depth of the bear market back in 70, whatever the hell it was, 74, buying Taco Bell on one-times earnings. One-times earnings. And someone said, I don't know if it was Roke, and John, if you're listening, could you weigh in? Because I think it was you. Somebody said it, or Walter Deemer said it. I never have an original thought. I just repeat smart things I hear others say. Maybe with Stan Weinstein. The hardest thing to do in a bull market is to stay invested. The hardest thing in a bear market is to stay out. And the reason for that is, in a bear market, usually it's associated with you know falling earnings, so the, so, the, so the E is not what you think it is. So someone mentioned earlier, you know, Facebook's on 12 times earnings. Like, you know, I kind of think it's probably not. But, you know, the E is wrong. But in any event, you've got you've got falling earnings. And Michael K is going to talk in a second. But he just jumped out of here. Get back up here, Michael. Um, so, 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 so the E the E is too high. And on top of it, you're looking through the prism of backward-looking valuation. So... Someone says, well, you know, Microsoft was in 40 times earnings. Now it's only on 30 times earnings. It's cheap. No, no. The thing is, Microsoft used to be on 20 times earnings. So, again, the hardest thing to do in a bull market is stay in. The hardest thing in a bear market is to stay out. Um, so, Mark, why don't you just hang right there? I want to get some more comments from you. But but I want to talk about cycles, and I can't think of anyone better than friend of the room, really smart guy. I don't know. I think the best strategist in the street. Again, I have no commercial relationship with him. He'll be embarrassed that I'm showing for him this way. I'm just speaking truth. Michael K., how are you, my friend? Uh, you've been a lot in this room. Love to hear your updated thoughts. What's going on, Michael? Hey, George. Good morning. Uh, can you hear me okay? You're good. Go for okay. it. Um, 
totally agree with the prior speaker uh, before, Mr. Roke. Um, the way uh, we measure tightening and easing several different ways, and you know, always draw conclusions where the breadth of evidence is. And when you look at the five basic drivers of the business cycle: short rates, long rates, the dollar, oil, gasoline. You know, those are the variable costs that go up and slow us down and come down and help revive the economy. If you, uh, we created a composite of this years ago just to keep it simple. And we've gone from a record level of easing on those five, uh, five different variables. Uh, I, just po I just tweeted this about 10 minutes ago, um, going back to the, uh, I think it goes back to the 80s, to a record level of tightening. So, you know, like what we see in the 10-year, it's, you know, it's the same thing as taking place essentially in the dollar, taking place in, uh, it's gonna, you know, in global short rates have gone up, and the Fed's obviously going to add to that. Oil, gasoline, we know what that's doing. And the U.S. dollar is going up. It's just adding insult to injury on, uh, you know, uh, other, other economies that are going to uh, respond from a tightening. So um, totally agree with that point. Uh, it's not, this is not going to end pretty. And I think what investors continue to miss, uh, I keep hearing that, you know, oh, the slowdown's already priced in and bearish sentiment, AAII, is at, you know, really low levels. It should be. And it's probably going to stay there because there's really no economic catalyst to prevent this slowdown. You know, we may get some good news if inflation slows or things in uh, Russia, Ukraine stabilize more. And that could lift the PEs for the market in the near term. But the story here is, you know, what's going to happen with inflation. But, you know, we're going to add to that a continued sustained slowdown, uh, looking at everything we're seeing now. And we're, we're, it's, it's now happening. You're seeing small caps now which had two-thirds of, uh, of estimate revisions that were positive a year ago, and they were there steadily. Same thing with mid- and large caps. Now it's down to 25% of small-cap stocks seeing positive earnings revisions. Uh, and that's only going to get worse or stay that bad, and, and it's going to bleed into the rest of the market. And that's why I think you're seeing this continued uh, defensive tilt in the markets. So, uh, Michael, um, you've been very uh... – I love the way you uh, think about things. You know, it was easy for to call out the Kathy Wood type stocks months ago. That was the that was the the nail that was standing up that needed to be hammered down, and then it morphed into more general schmeising of growth. But then we got onto a discussion. I, I I'd like you to repeat the point. I thought it was an excellent observation. Your idea that you kind of wanted to be between the thirty yard lines. The idea that you know uh, economically sensitive. Uh, zombie dead value could also be problematic. So, could you just speak a little bit about your view again on quality and like how you want to avoid both tails? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, the best time for value is in an economic recovery. And I know, you know, people, if you think about the world in a binary way, most people seem to be leaning into value because of the Kathy Wood stuff, uh, which is, you know, at, at the other extreme. But, you know, we're certainly not in the beginning of uh, an economic recovery where credit spreads are going to tighten and earnings estimates are going to go up and sentiment's going to go from bearish to bullish. So this is a horrible time to own high-risk, deep-value stocks. And on the flip side, take into account profitless, long-duration growth stocks that have no earnings. If the Fed's raising rates, that's, that's also not a good backdrop 
for the other extreme of the style trade. And so, you know, while there's been these big binary shifts that have been somewhat cyclical over the last 15 years from value to growth, and, you know, it's value works, all value works, or all growth works, we've been kind of in the last year and a half or so pushing people more into the middle and almost more focusing on cyclicality versus defensive uh, fundamentals or attributes rather than saying it's time to buy value or growth. I think it's, there, it's bad for both of those uh, extremes. And you know, we're seeing it at the factor levels, uh, free cash flow yield, book yield, earnings yield, sales yield. When you look at it from a sector neutral perspective, they've all gone nowhere in three months from a value perspective. Uh, and it's because defense is doing better. So, so, Mike, so, 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 Michael, I'm going to tease you a little bit here. So what you're basically saying is no sex, drugs, or rock and roll. You want boring. You want, you want stability, cash flows. You want good balance sheets. But this is not a time to be a hero in either extreme. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And that's only going to intensify as more and more companies are going to get sucked into this global economic downturn. And like you said, until something breaks, Tightening's not going to end. Oil, you know, you look, look at periods where the economy was slowing and oil's going up. On average, the ISM gets below 50 before energy or oil prices finally crack on, you know, the view that demand's going to collapse. We're nowhere near that. So right. We're still bullish, you know, I know many, many are with, with uh, the energy stocks and oil prices. Uh, I, I think, and with rates, additionally, you're going to need a deeper slowdown to get rates to come down than a typical slowdown where you start to slow rates come down immediately. When the Fed's raising rates, you need a much deeper slowdown to get those rates down. So, you know, I, I agree. Who knows how high they go? Maybe they stay here for a while. But how, when are they going to go down? You need a deep, deep slowdown. And that that's coming, but it's not. Yeah, there. Michael, help me for one second. I want to clarify something because. You probably heard me talk earlier about how I, you know, I keep taking the over on rates, but I want to understand why are you, why did you just say what you just said, which is you're going to need a deeper slowdown. For, I, I, that implies higher rates. Like, why are you saying we need a deeper slowdown? I'm not sure I understand you. So, when you look back at past cycles, there's there's two outcomes when you're at a peak in the in the profit cycle. If the Fed's not raising rates, and you're not in an inflationary backdrop, rates are going to uh, follow. Uh, economic momentum lower. Global PMI and the 10-year bond yield have a pretty tight relationship. The other scenario, which we saw in 2018, uh, we saw it in 2004, we've we actually seen it in every time the Fed's raised rates beyond a peak in economic momentum measured by the ISM index or the uh, earnings revisions, uh, rates stay high for a lot longer. Eventually, rates will come back down. Uh, you know, the question is how deep, you know, where's that Fed put, like you say, you know, or how deep of a slowdown do we need to, to get the Fed to wake up and realize? And, and at the end of the day, you know, everyone's so focused on inflation. Obviously, the central banks are appropriately focused on that. And we've seen leading indicators roll over. Coincident economic indicators like GDP and payrolls and profits are now starting to roll over. But lagging economic data, which is a lot of the data the Fed looks at, you know, not just CPI, or, uh, but other metrics, are not going to slow until later this year, early next year. So it's going to it's going to take a lot to change the to get Powell to pivot. Uh, it's going to take a deeper slowdown for this to change. You know, like we saw in twenty uh, the end of twenty eighteen, right? Powell finally pivoted. That was after 
you know, a full year, the slowdown. And this is a worse inflation situation. So I, I think you're going to really need to see bad economic data for a long time. Getting a lot. And by the way, um, if Bobby J would, he's in the room, if he'd come up and speak uh, on prayer a little bit. I'm sorry, sorry, Michael, I, I couldn't hear you for a second. You blacked out for 10 seconds. Can you just repeat what you were saying? Michael? Start to take place. Oh, we lost him. Can you guys hear me? Hey, yeah. Michael? Well, you're in a bad place. We missed you for the last 10, 15 seconds. Hey, can right. you hear me now? Yeah, you're good now. Go ahead. Up real quick. So the other, the other tightening that nobody's talking about that is not really happening yet, but it will happen. Slow. Hello? Hello? Yeah, Michael, yeah, I, you're, me... you're kind of going in and out on this. I'm, I'm sorry. You're going in and out. All right. Um, Michael, why don't you just hold it for now until you get to a better place? So, Mark Newman, are you still there, Mark? Yeah, hey, George. Yeah, yeah. did you want to respond to anything Michael said? Or you had some other thoughts you wanted to add, well, I believe? I did want to ask Michael the question, sort of in his, uh, he, you know, rec from record easing to record tightening. And I keep thinking about that old Jaws movie. You're going to need a bigger boat. Like, desperate times, desperate measures. The fact that they've blown this bubble so long, now their response to it almost has to be orders of magnitude bigger than what we've seen in the past. So I wondered, you know, Michael's thoughts on the record easing, record tightening shift. I mean, it's, it's extreme, right? That yeah, was one know. thing I wanted him just to comment a little further on. I don't know if he's back on or not, but... Um, I did want yeah. to also mention one thing within this context of the sharpening rates, uh, the raising rates, excuse me. And um, Mr. Howell touched on it. He said what he pondered, right? What was the U.S. ultimate plan? And when he was talking about the currencies, I just wanted to add one thing. You know, we've talked about the dollar strength and how that can, you know, go on in, in this environment. But when you look at the yen, the euro and the dollar, if they're all going to eventually, I don't know, race to debase, whatever, which of those three lasts the longest? And I think about it in that context, because look, global lines are being redrawn, right? And you have Russia, you have China, who's siding with whom, backing whom in the end, right? And that's what I asked about Michael uh, Howell's plan. What's the US ultimate plan? Is there some element of, you want your dollars? Come and get it, or get in line, like one of those two things. And I think about that sort of the ubiquity of the dollar, the army backing the currency, right? Again, yen, euro, dollar. If, if Japan and let's say the Europeans were to line up and say, we got to go with the U.S. on this, they're behind the dollar, right? So that means I look at it like that, right? The army behind the currency when we talk about currencies and also, you know, back to Michael Kantrowitz, that sharp tightening, the record tightening and the dollar strength that's befuddled everybody where like. What's what's the glide path? That's yeah, sort of how I lead. That's how I leave it. And I say the dollar is definitely going to be the last man standing between those other two I mentioned. Everything else, I'm not sure, but and I don't know how it ends. Michael, KK, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. I, just, I missed the beginning of that that first question. Yeah, oh, 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 okay, so yeah. let's just go on the way back. We missed the last 15 seconds of what you were saying. You said you wanted to wrap up, and we couldn't hear any of it. So maybe just Sorry, go back yeah. to what you wanted to say. I was just uh, saying the, the next tightening that's set to come and it happens every time the economy slows, you don't have to go into recession, is banks' lending standards. Uh-huh. 
forgot about that one. Good point. Good point. <laughs> All right. So, so, so I'm going to, so, so why don't we, why don't we pretend that Michael's not here because his, 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 uh, the quality of having issues. So Mark, why don't you hold that question? Let's hold Michael Coles comes back. Um, before we go to more questions, we're at the one hour mark. Um, this has been a great room. We had Michael Howe for the first 35 minutes saying he, you know, continues to suggest maintaining a very defensive posture towards markets, talking about how we're, you know, we've got a long way to go in this liquidity unwind and something's going to keep happening, keep tightening until something breaks. So Michael, as usual, he's nailed this, completely nailed this. I remember sitting in his office in London in October talking about this and he, he had it completely, completely laid it out. Before we go any further, um, I remind everyone, friends of this room know this. We do this for no financial benefit. Now, here comes a squeeze. Um, you know, these rooms have been growing enormously. We're getting 20,000 people at a clip listening to these spaces. Uh, this is a first world uh, problem that we have. Everyone has some net worth in this room that they're trying to maintain or increase. There are others in the world who are far less fortunate than we are. Uh, the room decided, or I decided with my group, and I have to call out Carol, Andrew, RJ, and Jack. There's a team of five of us that make these rooms happen. Um, Carol is in charge of the philanthropic efforts of this room. If she's so inclined, I'd be happy to have Carol come up and talk a little bit again about what we're doing. But we selected World Central Kitchen as the beneficiary of our efforts. If you find that there's being value generated in these rooms, I ask you to pay for it and give generously to World Central Kitchens. There's a link in my Twitter feed. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it back up again. Uh, we've So far, we've able, been able to raise $53,000 for the cause. We've been raised, I think we raised 8,000 in the last room and 12,000 in the room before that. Many of you who are up on stage have given generously. I'm not going to mention names. You know who you are. You're doing God's work. I do this for no financial gain. Um, I'm going to, happy to announce that we have a, uh, a challenge that's been offered by one of the uh, participants, as has been the case in the last couple of rooms. Uh, this person is anonymously challenging the rest of the room to a $2,000 pledge. This person is, uh, it's matching. They're putting up $2,000. If to the rest of the room, we'll also uh, together put up $2,000. So uh, I don't think that's much of an ask. Uh, the, the information you're getting in this room is, would cost you literally hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, Michael Howell, um, Michael Kantrowitz, um, you know, these are people that most of us don't have access to. And so to make a contribution to World Central Kitchens, you know, to leave the world in a better place than you found it, I don't think it's much of an ask. So I'm going to put a link in my Twitter feed. I'll put an updated link. If everyone would please give generously to World Central Kitchens. I'm not going to end this room until the room costs up $2,000 because we have a matching pledge of 2000 So that would be 4000 for the good guys. Okay, so let's move on. I'm going to go to my dear friend Three Aces. And then after three aces, we're going to go to Rob. Three aces, my friend, how are you? Hey, guys. Hi, George. Nice to speak to you. Sorry I've been a little preoccupied over the last couple of days. Um, I just wanted to make an observation, obviously, always in the form of a question, right? So on one hand, we've got these gruesome sentiment numbers coming out of retail folks, consumer sentiment, and so on. 
Um, on the other hand, you know, in my limited experience in the 52 years I've been around on earth, um, I've, I always generally thought the real estate market led the stock market down by about six months or so. Uh, that may be inaccurate. So, so, but what we're seeing here in this just utter bloodshed uh, in tech in particular, even biotech and some other things, I'm just curious as to what your take is. Um, have we even started to see the impact of the liquidity tightening or, you know, or is this just the world finally starting to wake up to, holy shit, these stocks are just absolutely catastrophically overvalued? Because, you know, like Mike Green said just a night or two ago, uh, you know, the S&P is only down 7, 8 percent or so. Um, I'm just curious what your take is on that. Um, you know, because on, on one hand, some of these things have been creamed so bad. Um, on the other hand, I could see most of them going to zero. And that's your ARC, ISK, uh, JDS, Uniphase, Carvana crap that's out there. Thanks in advance. Hey, it's Race. It's always good to hear from you. By the way, don't go away. I want to hear, um, I know you're in some crazy far-flung place. I think you went to visit Jonestown or something. You're in Guyana. So before I answer your question, can you tell us, like, where are you and what is Jonestown like, Three Aces? Yeah, so so I actually acquired a uh, an asset that was a former uh, Newmont Mining American Barrick joint partnership uh, uh, not about two hours from Jonestown. <laughs> so when I first flew in here, um, and I was doing all the due diligence and meeting the geologists and all that stuff about four or five weeks ago. Uh, we were flying down the road. These are these places are very remote in the jungles and stuff. You got to access them by four wheeler ATV kind of things. And we were flying down the road. And then there it was the sign Jonestown. I was like, holy shit. So we stopped. Uh, we took a picture out in front and then you can actually go in there. It's about a mile and a half back in there everything's overgrown, you know, 20 feet tall. Like it's the, the jungle reclaimed it, obviously that was in 1978. Uh, and there, but there's a monument there. Um, and, uh, you know, the airport that you fly into is called Port Kaituma, K-A-I-T-U-M-A. Um, and that's about three hours from my location. Um, and, um, that's the airport, uh, that I sent you that video from. Uh, where the massacre took place when the senator and his crew were were leaving Jonestown uh, in 1978, and their eight people were killed on that runway that that I showed you that video of. So yeah, so that's uh, that's my current uh, location. Holy smokes! Yeah, you sent me that video. That that was kind of cool. I mean, I, I know I kind of go over the top. I was wondering, like, by the way, do, can you can we get a photo op? Can you get a picture of you taken in front of the Jonestown sign? Is that possible, Three Aces? Yes. Um, I, the next time I'm in Port Kaituma there, um, I will uh, I will make it my business to go back in there um, and do that. Uh, cool. Yeah, I have a picture of me. I'll send you a picture of me in front of the Jonestown sign and a picture of me of just the, the I never it never dawned on me to to have a picture in front of the. the yeah, the, you know the, what? Maybe, yeah. maybe take a picture of you standing in front of the sign. Then maybe with a picture of you. Holding up a sign, got arc question mark and like you know. Okay. So, all right, that that'd okay. be kind of cool. All right, I so, wore my I wore my Let's Go Brandon T-shirt, but I'll I'll, I'll make a a got arc sign for the next one. <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, a more serious note, and I'd love to hear anyone on the uh, 
Mark or Michael K or Shrub. Shrub, I really want to hear from you because you made the comment. I'll answer first, and I want you to answer, Shrub. So you were asking about asset prices and whatnot. Um, I can tell you I live in Westchester, uh, just outside New York City, Westchester County. And for the first time now, this just happened basically overnight in the last week or two, the amount of real estate inventory is surging. I repeat, the amount of real estate inventory is surging. I also had a report, I'm not going to disclose location or name, but a very upscale uh, suburb of a major Midwestern city. If he wants to come up and talk about it, um, he can. He knows uh, the boy in the hood. He can talk about it, but I'm not going to give away sources. But uh, he explained to me, he has firsthand knowledge of virtually overnight, the real estate market started to soften in that suburb. I've also gotten similar reports out of certain Florida locations. Now, we don't want to get caught up in anecdotes, but a pattern is starting to merge three aces. I think, and it varies by market, you know, maybe the Midwestern city is going to peak three months before Scarsdale peaks, before Florida peaks, who knows. But when you start to see inventory expanding, that's a sign, that's a tell. It may take a while for it to work through the snake, but but that's a that's a leading indicator. And Shrub, if you're still there, you had spoken already about a month ago how it was the Russians that were top-ticking everything. And all of a sudden, I think your private banking friend said they're gone. And then the high-end restaurants are sucking wind. So, Shrub, can you give us a view from Europe? What's happening? What do you the change at the margin last couple of weeks? Because it's it's the change at the margin, it, it, which 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 runs rings around Wall Street. What are you what are you seeing and hearing from the European perspective, Shrub? And Shrub is in Shrub is in Monaco for for those of you who don't know. Yeah. Hey, George. So I, I think a, lot, a month ago I told you about a property in uh, a very high end property in uh, south of France. Uh, probably the most expensive area in the world, um, it was down 40% from the peak. Uh, and there still were no buyers. Um, people always forget that real estate is a very emotional asset if there's no value. Um, and, you know, they always get greedy. They always keep it. And then the emotion kicks in both on the way up, on the way down. Uh, you know, these are properties that are in the tens of millions. Uh, so suddenly the, the repricing actually went from 16 to 13 to 9 million. Uh, then since then, that was the first anecdote I told you, I told you since then, I've heard of very similar properties. Um, and it's happening like the, the prices just are back like to, to the level of years ago. Um, and then anecdotally, the yacht market here is just died. And I was speaking with a very big yacht broker and he said that the chart, so he said that the transaction business is frozen. Uh, and obviously we're talking about a very niche market, but it tells you about where, what the wealth is doing. Uh, but he said something that I thought was very interesting that the chartering business is booming because people made a lot of money last year. So they chartered for this year. But he said it reminded him a lot of 2008 where the same thing happened. You know, people made a lot of money in 07. They booked their charters for 2008. And then the market just froze for one year. So he says he's got the same bad feeling. <laughs> and this is a guy who doesn't follow the financial markets at all. He's just a yacht broker. <laughs> but he just basically said, I see them. They're booking all the charters. And it just feels like it's the last big thing they're going to do uh, before the slowdown. George, let me add one point. 
Go, uh, yeah, Mark, go we can it. hear you. Yeah, Mark, Mark go hey, for it. I'm sorry, go I kind of lost. So my buddy moved to the West Coast, got a new job, and he's out there looking for houses. And he said all the deals, like Shrub speaks of the last gasp, all the deals are going through offer all cash. And when I asked him what about the financing, he goes, no, these are sort of the trust fund Silicon Valley type kids who can't touch their trust just yet. So they have no real access. So they pay cash. And uh, like Michael K said earlier, the banks aren't doing the deals as much anymore. And this is that kind of evidence. So these all these little anecdotes really add up to some of the bigger ticket things, seeing some funky stuff. And it, it really it, it does. It does smell a little bit last gasp effort. Uh, I just wanted to reiterate. Couldn't couldn't agree with you more. And again, um, I don't want to get caught up in anecdotes, but you know, it's like putting a puzzle together. You start to see enough pieces of the puzzle. I'm about one thirty or two. And 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 it's about one thirty or two. Hello. One thirty. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, that'll give me. Yeah, just change it on there. Yeah. Hold on. Hey, hey, Rob, please meet yourself. Rob, please meet yourself. Thank you. Um, Okay, so I'd like to, um, we want to go to the bad boy from the hood, um, Detroit bad boy, uh, my good friend. Uh, what's going on in your part of the world, Mr. Bad Boy? Uh, can you hear me? We hear you fine. Okay, I just wanted to kind of reiterate what George said. Um, I'll try to be quick about this. I, I'm in Florida right now. My parents are ailing. They're 91 years old, and we're in the process of getting rid of their assets that they can't use because they're in poor health. And they, they own a very nice home in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. Now, most people think Detroit's a disaster, but trust me, Bloomfield Hills is one of the wealthiest suburbs in the country. It's in Oakland County. Most people are unaware of it. And when we were looking to put it on the market, I called some friends there and they said, you know, what you hear in every market in the United States, that is no inventory. Everyone's a cash buyer, multiple bids over the asking. This was two weeks ago. We put the house on the market on Monday, and on Thursday, the broker called us and said, you need to slash pricing. There's a barrage of inventory that just hit the market. The market literally changed overnight. So that kind of, that was like out of left field, because I'm, I'm in Florida right now, and it's it's still the mantra of no inventory, multiple bids over offer, everyone's a cash buyer, going up forever. Second point I'd make is I have a nephew that works at a, what I call a wise guy fast money hedge fund in Miami. They're very good. They do a lot of uh, channel checks, but sophisticated, expensive channel checks where they pay enormous amounts of money for these data feeds that are proprietary. And he told me that they've been following the PayPal payment data for 10 years. And they've never seen such a steep decline so quickly that in the last two weeks. And the third and final point I'd like to make is uh, they also pay a lot of money to get somehow proprietary data feeds on what's going on at Wayfair. I don't know why Wayfair in particular, but same thing. It just it's like someone hit a light switch. It just all of a sudden everything stopped. Business just rolled over hard. So I think my message is this. I'm I'm not I guess I'm shocked by how fast it's happening. It literally is changing like a week and a half. So I, I got I got. Friday morning, I got a little like it was a cold shot. I knew it was coming, but it hadn't shown up, and now it's showing up. So I just wanted to pass those anecdotes along. Thank you. Hey, bad boy, appreciate it. Um, question for you. I know, I think you're in Vero Beach or somewhere up on the east coast of Florida. 
could you give some anecdotes what's going up in your particular area on the real estate side i know you were getting some heat um were you with you were thinking about buying something and i'm not sure i know what you did but i'm, I'm sure you've been scouring the market pretty intensively in your local area could you tell us what's just going on in the vero beach area in terms of real estate it's out of control uh, as a matter of fact, I put in a bid on Friday with the market down 900, and I put in a conservative bid, and it went a million over asking. So they haven't gotten the memo in Vero Beach down to Miami. It's you know it's off the charts hot now. They claim it's because of the migration of people out of the Northeast and Upper Midwest to escape the tax ban, but in my opinion, this is just all the same trade. I don't care if it's Scarsdale or Greenwich or Palm Beach or pick your nice place. It, it does, I think it's all the same trade. Uh, but you know, there's, I didn't know the Scarsdale anecdote that inventories have surged, uh, until now, but, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. bad boy. Cause you and I spoke yesterday and the reason you didn't, I didn't tell you that yesterday is because when you told me at Bloomfield Hills, I went to my better half and said, and asked her, she's like, Oh yeah, inventory is going up. I said, wait a second. You didn't tell me that. So yeah, it's hap It's happening. However, however, pricing is still very firm. I mean, still going over ass. So I would say Vera Beach and Scarsdale are still on the same page. It's different from Bloomfield Hills. So you got, you know, it's, it happens slowly. It doesn't all happen at once. That would be my take on it. You got any thoughts? Uh, I Well, I mean, prices down here are up literally 50% from just last year. And I thought last year it was out of control. So th this, look, at if they start, if they really start shrinking the Fed's balance sheet, everything goes. That's my belief. Maybe I'm wrong. Now, if they well, if they can oh. if they can slow down the credit creation and nothing happens, I'll admit I'm wrong. But it common sense will tell you that what took it up is going to take it down. I mean, I think it's just that simple. Hundred percent, or hundred percent, bad boy. I, I'm the same way. And just to remind people, Larry Jetalo, who's a friend of this room, has been in here before, and I said this a couple of weeks ago. I think I tweeted it out to remind everyone on the way up. Uh, the, the back of the napkin math, the back of the envelope calculation was each hundred billion of QE was worth 40 S&P points or about 1% at current levels. And he thinks it'll be worth at least that much on the way down, probably more just because the, the equity markets uh, that much more or less liquid. But just using back of the envelope, if you just said 40, every hundred billion is 40 points. And they want to take the balance sheet down by 3 trillion, 30 times 40 is 1200 which is a 30% off sale from present levels. So the interest here is not in trying to be precise. The interest here is getting direction. And as Michael Kay was saying, you know, with the economy slowing, earnings estimates rolling over, valuation extended, people fully invested, like what could possibly go wrong? So again, equities, in my opinion, represent uh, return-free risk. All right, let's go to Rob, and then we're going to go to KFEB. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Rob? All right. KFab, you there? I am, George. KFab, um, good, good to see you, my friend. What's up? Always great to speak with you, George. Um, I just wanted to add two more anecdotes to uh, uh, what Bad Boy had said. Uh, so Craig Fuller is a great follow on, on Twitter. He looks at transportation. Uh, and there's some other people through following him that I've started following. And that, the transportation area has hit a wall at the same time, kind of the last three, four weeks. Um, and I have a teenage daughter for whom I'm trying to acquire her first vehicle for, uh, in anticipation of her first job this summer. And, uh, so I've been monitoring the car market and again, following some people on Twitter that are very smart and involved. And it appears that seasonally the 
kind of March, uh, early April tax return uh, time is like, you know, the worst time usually to buy a car because people get their tax returns and the particularly used car dealers come in and just hammer people. Um, and uh, apparently that market died this year, meaning that they, they just completely did not get the type of uh, flow of customers um, like they usually do and anticipate. And generally speaking, uh, the used car market has really started to roll over, it seems. And the Mannheim auto auction uh, prices have started to roll over too. So again, just as a nexus of all of the, th the things that have already been mentioned. And then I added up in the nest, uh, Lakshman from Equity um, sent out a tweet yesterday. Uh, their coincident um, uh, index has actually, the growth rate of it has actually already went negative. So that's that's like looking out the window now. Um, is that, you know, the economy has slowed enough already that, uh, you know, the growth rate has turned negative. Okay, Fed, really, really insightful comments. And by the way, for those of you who haven't heard him speak before, I can't, recommending, um, I can't recommend following KFAB strongly enough. We have some really smart people in this room. That's what makes this room great. I'm just the organizer. Um, but it's people like KFAB, Three Aces, Michael K, Detroit Bad Boy, Shrub, they make this room. And I thank all of you. And together we're trying to figure this out. We're just a bunch of ordinary guys trying to figure this out one time. Uh, we don't know the answers. We make a lot of mistakes, unlike the fakers and the posers on CNBC and these other Fintwit rooms. We have the best content, period. I said to my colleagues the other day in, a, in an organizational meeting, we are the Saudi Arabia of content. We beat everyone on content. We also have the best rooms because we have the best people in these rooms. And not everybody likes the way I moderate. Well, we use a Socratic method. We keep it on the straight and narrow. I know I got kind of hot the other day, but there was some fellow who was just running on at the mouth and it was just like ridiculous. It's wasting everybody's time. Uh, at any rate, uh, we now have a uh, shrub help me. I'm a technology Neanderthal. I keep screwing it up, trying to put things up in the nest. The If you look up in the nest, the link to World Central Kitchen is up there. Um, please give generously. Uh, as I said, there are people who are, you know, literally being bombed on. I mean, World Central Kitchens is doing God's work. There are other organizations that should remain nameless that you are aware of that won't even go into the Ukraine because they get bombed on. Well, guess what? World Central Kitchen got bombed on. I mean, these people are literally taking their life in their hands. So here it is. We're all sitting here on a Saturday morning, you know, in North America or Monaco, wherever it is, drinking our coffee and just shooting the breeze with each other. I urge everyone, I beseech everyone, I implore everyone, please, please, please give generously. Um, leave the world a better place than you found it. So it's the least we can do. I see we're up to 54,000. If we get another eight, 1,200 bucks, they'll give us 2,000 on the day. And then the match kicks in for 2,000. And by the way, just as a reminder, preview coming attractions, on Monday, we're having Chris Barone, who was the head of macro and technical research at Strategus. He's a wonderful thinker, wonderful chartist at 4 p.m. And then uh, on next Thursday, John Roke and I will be doing the keynote address at the CMT conference being held in Washington, D.C. It's at 3.30 p.m. There will be a free live stream of this event on our YouTube, on our YouTube channel. Uh, to attend this event, you either have to be a member, or if you're not, you got to pay big money. 
but this will be given free, uh, free access. It'll also be recorded if you can't watch it live. But John Roke and I will be tag teaming the CMT keynote address. It's Thursday at 3.30 p.m. Okay, so again, please give generously to World Central Kitchen. The link is up in the nest. All right, let's go now. To Shrub, did you have something you wanted to say, Shrub? George, yeah, George, uh, just to mention that Christine, who's a good friend in this room, so she pledged uh, $2,000 uh, to meet the goal. So thank you very much, Christine. She's a, she's a great person and very, very knowledgeable uh, oil and gas expert. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. She just, she just, she just pledged $2,000. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Awesome. So thank Christine. Really appreciate it. I think everyone yeah. does. Yeah, if, she's, if she feels so inclined enough, she's in the room, she wants to come up and talk about, you know, she's got some opinions about oil and gas. We should talk about energy. Yeah, she's here. I mean, Christine, she used to run an oil rig. <laughs> so, All right. So you know what, Shrub? Shrub I'm going to make you a co-host because I don't know who she is. I, so you're, uh, you're a co-host. Yeah, let me, you want to invite her up. Please accept but you can invite yeah, her. Yeah, let me, let me see how you do it. Uh, yeah, just hit invite. To, you can invite. To, just You know what you do? Touch on her picture and then hit the button that says invite to speak. That's how you do it. Oh, there you go. Great. Okay. Um, I brought it on, but can I just say one thing? Because yeah. I actually... Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, so just one thing, because um, I, I need to take the family somewhere. Um, so we've been talking about housing, which is a, it's, it, it's an emotional purchase, but it's also the biggest purchase that most people make in their lifetime. So let's put, and we've seen this rolling over or peaking or getting anecdotal evidence that something is happening there. But let's put that aside. I think the other side of the spectrum of spending that we should mention, let's speak at the spectrum, at the other side of the spectrum, so the very low priced items. Netflix, 2 million subscribers canceled, right? So Netflix said, oh, it's because of COVID. And then there was a consumer survey in the UK and the, that was run by the Bank of England, so a credible one. And it came out that a lot of respondents said that they're cutting down on subscriptions to make ends meet. So a lot of that canceling of subscriptions, and you know my view that Europe is already in a recession, they're already canceling subscriptions in Europe and the UK because the consumer is hurting. So housing aside, if people are cutting down on small items, Netflix in Europe, the big ticket items, they're going to suffer <laughs> much more. 100% shrub. And as was pointed out, I think KFAB was, was going back and forth with me in a, in a Twitter exchange this morning because there were some statistics put out about um, – consumer savings and debt and all this sort of stuff. And it shows the consumer to be in relatively good shape, but it was correctly pointed out by I think KFAB and some others and KFAB, maybe you could elaborate on this a little bit. You know, there's lies, damn lies, statistics. So when you look at the aggregate statistics, you've got those at the upper end who are doing extremely well and they've got a lot of savings. Then you have the bottom part of the socioeconomic strata and they're getting absolutely destroyed with rising inflation and their savings, you know, are not in such great shape. They're living paycheck to paycheck. So, there's a real, you know, the, the average doesn't really tell you anything. It's sort of like if you ask people, what's the average, have the average height of, of, of a bunch of, it's two people in the room, what's the average height? And you tell them it's, uh, you know, six, six feet tall. And they say, okay. But then you find out it's, uh, you got Shaquille O'Neal at seven foot two and you got Muggsy Bogues at five. It was a former NBA player, five foot four. So it doesn't really tell you anything. So, there are a lot of people who are getting really smashed by what's going on, despite what the IRS will tell you. KFAB, did you want to weigh in a little bit more on those, on those stats? Uh, 
It, yeah, just real quick. Um, I encourage people that haven't to check out Hoisington's quarterly that just came out yesterday. And in that, um, uh, Lacey Hunt went through. I mean, basically, you've got 170 million people in the country, roughly, that had their income drop in real terms over the last 12 months. Um, so re relative to what Shrub's saying, and, and that's even worse probably in Europe, um, is my guess. Um, the, the flip side of that, and I, this is a, a, an extension of, the, of that, is I, I haven't he heard or seen any data, but uh, another shooter drop could be withholdings for retirement savings as people kind of chop uh, you know, so-called discretionary. And I, I wonder how much that could potentially hit passive flows um, as people, you know, eliminate their 6% or whatever payroll deductions that they're um, plowing into to retirement accounts. Because I mean, you know, let, let's, if you even just back out the retired folks living on fixed income where social security, I think was like 5.8 COLA, um, you know, and, and, and I always, I, I say it tongue in cheek. I mean, for, for me, it's like a crime against humanity, but I call it the phony baloney Boskin Commission inflation data. Um, that's that's using the phony baloney inflation stats, the real stats that people are actually facing in life, you know, probably 10, 12 percent. Um, and they're getting five percent colas. I mean, people are just getting absolutely roasted uh, with with the inflation. So it, that's a great point, Keith. Have and points to why also when we talk about where to be in the market, where to be invested. And I, I try not to get drawn into individual stocks because I don't want to get into compliance. I don't have a compliance issue, but I don't want to be responsible for people's, uh, what they do. They, you got to make your own decisions. It's one of the reasons why I continue to be consumer stocks are just going to complete. It's why they act so badly. They're going to continue to act badly because real incomes are getting destroyed as you rightly point out, KFAB. So, you know, there's a Kathy Wood stocks, there's a consumer stocks, there's a tech stocks. There's, there's these are just all completely no fly zones. And so I, I think, you know, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna have a slowdown. Eventually, get a recession out of this. I'd like to go to uh, the individual who, who operates an oil rig. So, Christine, uh, welcome to the room. Thank you very, very much. I guess you know, you're a friend of Shrubs. Thank you for your generous contribution to World Central Kitchen. Um, you know, it's just just wonderful. The, and we we all give to you know our own ability. I fully understand there are some young people in the room. Maybe they're students who have negative net worth. That was me once upon a time. You know, send in 10 bucks. That's fine. But some of you have given very generously in the thousands of dollars. And Christine, I'm very grateful for your contribution of $2,000. So, Christine, do you want to share your insights about energy or whatever else you'd like to talk about? Welcome, Christine. Um, I mean, I don't have any, uh, you know, big mic dropping insights right now. I just wanted to go ahead and thank you for um, reminding everyone, you know, to donate at this time and especially people who've made money in oil and gas and, and people who follow me, they know that the last two years, um, you know, I mean, I crushed it. Like I, I literally sold my house to buy oil and gas, um, in 2020. So you can imagine how much money I made, um, especially since I leveraged all that. So, um, and you know, but, you know, but it's a solid reminder that, you know, everyone who's making money off of, the price of oil and gas going up here. I mean, you know, there are side effects and consequences to that. And the number one side effect and consequence, you know, is food insecurity. Um, you know, we've got millions of people, you know, slipping into uh, food insecurity, you know, month over month. And, and, you know, a lot of us in North America, I mean, we, we don't get that, you know, we have social systems 
that allow, you know, our poor to go get food and to be part of programs. And, you know, most other countries in the world, I mean, they just don't have that. So, so trying to get, um, you know, those organizations, the proper funding so that they, um, they can help reach those people. And I mean, you're literally saving lives. That's thank you so much, Christine. That, 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 that's terrific. As long as I got you up there, I'm just kind of curious. Um, what is your take? I mean, obviously on energy, obviously it's been great the last you know couple of years, but the past is prologue and you know, you're only as good as your last trade. So are you inclined to be, you know, you don't have to talk about individual names. I don't want it to be too personal, but are you hanging on to what you got? You still think the future is bright? Are you worried about the stocks turning down if we get a recession or where's your head at with respect to energy investing right now? So kind of my take on the situation is that many generalists still don't believe in oil and gas. You know, I think that there's still kind of this, um, idea that that somehow oil is going to go back down, you know, to $60 a barrel, you know, um, and a lot of that is propagated, you know, by the the um, the political rhetoric that we see in here every day. So um, so kind of what I see happening is, you know, us potentially staying like in this consolidation realm with the equities. But eventually there's going to be this aha moment. Because politicians are going to have to start uh, explaining to the public why oil prices have stayed high. Um, and, and I don't see any big pullback to $60 a barrel, which is why I believe that, you know, oil and, ga- oil and gas will stay high. You know, inflation adjusted $80 per barrel in 2014 is $100 today. So where we're trading today is really only $80 per barrel in 2014. And, and you can go back and you can see that uh, during the last cycle, um, you know, oil, you know, for years, it consolidated in a healthy range, you know, around $80 per barrel. And so, uh, so kind of what I see happening is, is us uh, achieving some kind of consolidation zone. And it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly where that's going to be because uh, we still have all this noise in the system because of the sanctions and what's going to happen with the Russian barrels. And uh, people are figuring out how to absorb them right now because so long as a ship's cargo is less than 50% Russian uh, oil, it's not considered Russian anymore. So, I mean, there will be ways that things get worked into the system because there's just no way that the world can wean itself off of uh, Russian barrels because there's just not enough global supply. So, uh, so that is creating this noise and uncertainty, but, um, the price of the equities, I mean, they really, even, you know, where equities are priced right now, they're not reflective of the current price of oil. So there still needs to be some adjustment there. I'm still overweight oil and gas. I mean, I significantly, uh, hold oil and gas in my, in, in my portfolio and it's just subsidized a little bit with mining, um, and some some finances. Um, and then I also own real estate. Uh, it's kind of been like my side hustle for the last 10 years. So, um, so yeah, you know, I mean, I believe in real stuff, you know, I believe in hard assets, uh, you know, I believe in value and, and that's how I'm positioned. That's great. Christine. Christine let me, let me ask you, are you at all, I mean, Shrub, sorry, sorry. Oh, let me ask Christine one question. You go ahead, Shrub. Christine, how do you think about the potential for any Correct. Even though, let's say, secretly, I agree with you. Are you at all concerned if we hit this air pocket in the economy and markets that 
you know, you may have to give back some of your ill-gotten gains here for the next few weeks, just as you did the last couple of days of last week. Do you think you think some of these stocks can be vulnerable in the short run, Christine? Um, I mean, it's anyone's guess whether or not a big market correction is going to cause some hedge fund to blow up, which uh, basically cascades into other sectors, including ours. You know, I mean, all it, you know, I mean, you guys are financial people. You trade all the time. I mean, you know that there's these ripple effects in the system. And for me, the ripple effects in the system has always been my biggest risk here. Got it. Shrub. Uh, yeah. So the one one takeaway I got from Christine, and uh, I'm just going to do it as a leading question because that was an eye-opening moment for me. So uh, we've said this before. Forty percent of people that work in the oil and gas industry have left the industry since 2014, and 40 percent of offshore rigs have also left the industry since 2014. So now, Christine, you used to work on a rig, and you said that if you were going to go back on a rig you would need how many months of training again? So just to show people the lag between now prices at 100, the lag of getting good people like yourself back on a rig and back into production. Yeah, so my background is, I used to be a drilling engineer. I was a, a senior drilling engineer and I've actually uh, drilled deep water wells um, you know, all around the world. Uh, I've also got an MBA and I've worked as a uh, economic advisor, decision advisor and portfolio advisor for major capital projects and for, um, you know, basically new country entry and, um, you know, project advancement. So, um, you know, I've got a perspective of oil and gas at the bit as well as, you know, a high level perspective in terms of where companies are going to spend money point forward. Um, and when I say companies, I mean majors, because I never worked for small caps. I always worked for large companies, large multinational companies. Um, so anyway, uh, let's say I went broke tomorrow and I needed to re-enter the industry. Um, even, you know, with 20 years of experience, which I have, you know, I haven't worked in the industry since 2015. So all of my certifications, I mean, they're all expired. Um you know, I could pick up the phone and, and likely get hired, you know, within a month, but it would probably still take three months to fully onboard me because of the hiring constraints and how they have to basically post jobs and get uh, a number of resumes and go through a vetting process to prove that they're not discriminating before they actually hire someone. And then and then once I got in. Uh, you know, it, it might take me three to six months to get all the safety certifications to get back on the rig, you know, to get my uh, OSHA cards and my, um, you know, uh, basically water survival and, you know, uh, H2S gas and just, I mean, there's just like a plethora of certifications that you need. Um, now, if you're working uh, for small companies and, and maybe, um, you know, they're less rigorous uh, on some of these land operations. I mean, you know, it might it might be quicker. But, you know, but if you're working for, you know, a major, you know, um, the, like I said, there's there's a process. I mean, when I went to work for Chevron, from the time I, I interviewed with them to the time I walked in the door was six months. And I was already working for another company at that time. So, I mean, I didn't need any certifications. Um, it, you know, but again, it's just the, the hiring process for a major, um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, cumbersome. 
and that's a problem. We had the, you know, the war in Ukraine was uh, a month ago. So if you're going to ramp up op operations, <laughs> if you have the good people, it's going to take you at least six months to get the oil out of the ground. I mean, and to get people like Christine as well uh, on yeah. board. Let, let's just say this. I, I know recruiters who are looking for recruiters. I mean, it's uh, so they're the ramp up, uh, like the hard ramp up. I don't think it's happened yet, but but they're staging for it right now. There have been a number of job fairs and most of those job fairs that have been conducted have been more for like well site positions and not so much office positions. I do slowly see uh, office positions getting posted. I mean, I'm not looking for a job. I don't intend on ever going back to oil and gas. I'd probably lose money completely focused on what some company wants me providing them data for than watching my own portfolio. So it just would be senseless for me to go back and work for another company. But, uh, you know, but I have a bunch of friends who are looking and, uh, and for me, it's concerning that they're still looking. Christine, let me ask you something else. Um, I, I could imagine someone who was maybe once worked. Uh, you cut out. I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. So listening to you speak, Christine, maybe you could speak generally about uh, the mindset of those who have been in the industry. I mean, maybe not just yourself, but more generally. I could imagine if you lived in the industry and you got axed and thrown out on your butt. And now there's a stigma about, for some people, about working in a industry that's you know throwing carbon up in the air so i could imagine for someone thinking about maybe going into the energy industry a combination of concern over job security that they fire people like they do and you're polluting the environment which is completely wrong but leave that aside like does that kind of make it raise the bar to try make it more difficult to attract people to come to the industry the average person um i think that when you look at the uh the ESG, the woke mentality of they're polluting the industry, that might hurt uh, college recruiters. But, you know, people who've worked in the industry uh, at least a handful of years, I mean, they know how hard uh, companies work not to pollute. Um, I mean, like, like the last drilling rig that I was the dr senior drilling engineer for, I, I flew out there and, you know, once I got out there, I was walking around and, and I just, I noticed like a, a coffee cup in a drain and I reached down and I picked up that coffee cup and threw it in the trash and I kept going. And then uh, during the next safety meeting, you know, the company man, like, he's like, Hey, I, I just want to like point something out real quick. And then he turns over and he asked me, he's like, why, why did you pull that coffee cup out of the drain, you know, on the, on the offshore rig? And, and I said, well, because that coffee cup could clog the, the drain and the next thing it, it rains. And then that rain uh, causes, um, you know, any, any oil that's on the deck to like uh, maybe float up and then, and then somehow spill into the ocean. So, I mean, keeping the drains clean is is the number one thing that you do to help prevent you know uh small spills and and we're talking about oil so i mean it doesn't take a whole lot to create a giant oil slick offshore because it just like dissipates and it spreads so so thinly and, and creates that sheen but um you know but but what i'm saying is you know that's the mentality of of an offshore worker you know you're doing everything that you can do to prevent a spill 
And, you know, and, and even on these land sites, you know, some of the pad preparation for these land rigs, I mean, it's, it's very rigorous, you know, they, they're scraping the area, they're laying down a barrier, you know, even if you walk onto a rig and you see what you think might be a spill, the reality is, is there's a, you know, there's another spill pan that's, that's beneath the dirt that you're standing on that's been laid there to ensure that nothing actually gets into the water table. So, um, so people who work in the industry, I mean, they get it. Um, you know, the, the ESG propaganda isn't going to keep them from, uh, getting a job, but what will keep them from going back into the industry is the fact that they've been out for a few years and they now have a different career. So, so another, uh, headline fact that, that I, uh, got, you know, just a few weeks ago from my neighborhood newspaper was that, um, and I, and I posted this uh, on, uh, on Twitter a few times. Since 2015, 70% of oil and gas workers in the woodlands have been laid off. Uh, when you look Wait, Christine, at... Me, Christine, 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 stop, stop. Could you please repeat that again? Please repeat that. Yeah, so, so since 2015, the last, when the, the start of the last oil uh, crisis, the dip, the, well, I, well the, I should say the crisis, the commodity price, not the crisis, uh, you know, that leads to food insecurity. But um, but yeah, like during the last oil crash uh, since then into COVID, there 70 percent, seven zero of oil and gas people who who lived in the woodlands got laid off. So so a lot of people took early retirement packages and, and let's say if someone was like in their late 50s and their 60s and they went ahead and took a package and left, I mean, let's face it, like they're just flat out retired. They're not coming back. Uh, people in their 40s who that happened to, um, and I'm kind of like in that, um, in that window, you know, I was like 40 when this happened. And so I'm 45 now, um, you know, I mean, we went on to do other things. And so now what uh, oil and gas is going to be competing with is trying to take, trying to t attract people away from whatever they navigated to, and like for me, you know, I've been super successful, so they're never going to be able to attract me. You know, I've got friends who have three kids now, and they started businesses, and they're home every night, and they're not going to go back to being a directional driller offshore and gone for a month at a time. You know, um, they've they've uh, acclimated to their new lifestyle and they like their family and they want to be home, you know. And then I have other other connections that I know that that work on on rigs and uh, they're they're still, you know, doing what they're doing. Um, and I'm and they're kind of like in this show me the money uh stage so they'll they'll eventually whore themselves out when the money's right um you know so so yeah i mean the, the industry is just competing with a lot of factors and the pool of people is small and the the conception that we can ramp up quickly is uh, you know it's a fairy tale it's not going to happen because the people aren't there and the materials aren't there and uh, it's not like we're only missing one, you know, we're missing both. That's Christine, it's really, really interesting to hear that from you because you're an expert in the industry. Uh, we're going to, I want to go to Oil God. Um, Oil God, if you have a question for Christine, I think we're really fortunate to have her here. 
So if there's a question you'd like to direct towards Christine as someone who actually works in the industry, oh God, I know you're in the industry as well, but maybe from a slightly different perspective. And then after Oil God, I'd like to go to Three Aces. Uh, so Oil God, the floor is yours. Are you there? Yeah, yeah, thank you for that, George and Christine. Thank you for your donation. Um, I do have a question, uh, and, and this is because obviously we're in agreement um, on obviously the, the space of, of obviously energy and, and the undersupply, the lack of you know talent, infrastructure, you name it. I mean, I think we're all on the same page with respect to that. Um, Christine, the question that I have that perhaps you can help with George, he was asking you, you know, coming weeks and this and that, and you've obviously seen different oil equities respond differently in the last 48 hours, one, two weeks up and down and whatnot. But would you argue that this time is different largely because the balance sheets of these businesses are materially changed as well as the actual operations from a board of directors levels, management levels, how they're compensated? And then also um, when you pair that with you know, lack of talent, lack of supply, and then you listen to one of George's keynote speakers saying where you want to be invested going into a market like this, which is boring, free cash flow, not a lot of risk. I mean, I think there's a misconception that oil equals risk, whereas what the rest of the world is now figuring out is oil and energy is lifeline, right? And George, I'd like you to come back to me after Christine asks this when you have time, uh, because I do want to pair back a previous conversation, even one that Three Aces asked with leading with real estate. But I'd start perhaps by asking Christine how she feels about those sort of topics that I just laid out. Thank you very much. Christine? So, so, you know, right now, I mean, we know that most oil and gas companies are profitable, you know, so long as they can, um, you know, maintain their production, that they have sufficient rigs to uh, basically tow the line and keep going. I mean, it's it's a safe investment. We know that, but we're a small number of people. Uh, so I kind of want to go back to my ripple effects, the the ripple effects of things that are happening in the stock market and with other companies that are outside of our industry not doing good and and creating big drawdowns in in you know hedge fund managers portfolios that's our big risk because what was happening yesterday wasn't people selling it was algorithm selling and and even though it feels like we took a big haircut uh over the last one or two days I mean, if you zoom back, the stocks are basically where they were trading two weeks ago. So, I mean, I don't get caught up in day-to-day moves. You know, I'm kind of, I'm more, kind of more in the in the, in the rhythm. In rhythm. I don't know why this thing's echoing back. Hold on, let me mic off. Hold on, let me mic off and mic back on. Hold on, let me mic off and mic back on. I think George's uh, speaker is on. I think George's uh, speaker is on. George, no, it's not. I'm not it. I'm quiet. I'm on it. Seems common as an algo guy. If you're All right, so hold on. So, Christine, why don't you just hold? Yeah, so Christine, why don't you hold it for a second, and then Illinois, why don't you weigh in, and then Christine, you can come back in. Sure. Um, assuming that the DE Shaws and the Rentex of the world have this stuff in their portfolios, what they're doing is they basically have a series of alphas. Um, probably, you know, it's, it's probably being driven by you know free cash flow expectations of free cash flows, uh, the price, along with a lot of other different things. But assuming that, you know, the, the hedge funds with their alphas are seeing some of the same stuff that we're seeing, um, it's, go, it's getting fed into the portfolio optimizer. And they're trying to basically maximize expected returns minus risk or volatility. Um, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, the old solution of alpha sigma inverse. 
Um, but when you have a situation where volatility increases and there's a call on liquidity at some of these big funds, I don't know if that's going on. But let's assume hypothetically it might be at, at some of the bigger firms. Then what the optimizer is going to do is it's going to say, hey, wait a second. You know, specific risk is going up in these stocks. Sector risk is going up in these stocks. And we need to reduce our position sizes because, again, the, you know, the proper positioning in the portfolio is, is, you know, your expected returns divided by your expected volatility. So if the denominator increases, that's going to kind of nudge you at a lot of these stocks. And if it's in the small cap space um, and, and they've been building a position for a while, uh, that's going to be a really big call in liquidity from the markets when they try and sell out. And that's going to move prices down. And that could be what's happening right now. I don't, I, I don't work in the space anymore. Um, you have to accept a couple of hypotheticals, but that might be what's going on. Yeah, Illinois, that's entirely plausible. And I, I like Christine, and I want to come back to her. I also don't get caught up in the day-to-day -day machinations of price. You know, as Christine said, and, I, and, I, and I, I guess this is Twitter speak, you know, Prices of Canadian oil equities have crashed to levels not seen since, you know, April 10th or whatever. I mean, it's a joke. It's a freaking joke. And anyone who's on the edge of their seat because they get odd job because prices go up five or, up and down 5 or 10% in a few days just shouldn't be in these stocks. But I actually think it's a good thing because it shakes out. There's a guy, there was a guy, um, Ken Hebner, one of the great uh, investors of our time. Um, he's, he's seen his better days, but he's an older gentleman now. He runs capital growth funds out of Boston. He was a, a peer of Peter Lynch. I learned a lot from Ken. And he'd get very excited about stocks. But but it was always know what you own, which, you know, as long as I'm name, Peter Lynch. Listen, if you own these things on two times cash flow or whatever, I mean, we all heard Eric Nuttall, by the way, commercial pitch. We had Eric Nuttall in the room uh, five days ago on Monday. The preeminent canadian energy investor bar none i urge you to go listen to the replay combine that with the replay of his webinar where he interviewed mike rothman in my opinion the best analyst on the street of cornerstone analytics actually I get confused between cantro's firm and they're both cornerstone but anyway you have the best oil counter barrel oil barrel counter mike rothman being interviewed by Eric Nuttall two weeks ago. And this past Monday, Eric Nuttall graced our room. So if you want to get up to speed on energy, in my view, again, do your own work, but in my view, those are the two best guys out there. And it's know what you own. You know, at the same time, we're talking about, oh my God, what happened? Chicken Little, the sky's falling. These stocks got schmiced the last couple of weeks, couple of days. And I is probably right. You know, we always want to attach reason or narrative to something that's going on. And the fact of the matter is, I've been beat up enough and I'm humble enough to just say, you know what, I don't know. I can just see what the price is on the screen. And if these things aren't two and a half times cash flow, <laughs> like, okay, fine. Let somebody sell it. If I channel my inner, inner Peter Lynch, I'd say, oh, actually, that's a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Well, it's because I get to buy more at a lower price. So, again, to paraphrase Oscar Wilde, I put that in my Twitter feed. It's a play on words, you know. People know the value of everything, sorry, the price of everything and the value of nothing. And that, by the way, is really the problem with so much of the stock market. I'm just going to go off on a tangent here.
So you have these these hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars that have gone into the market buying index funds, buying the Kathy Wood stocks, et cetera, et cetera. And you've had this complete gamification of the stock market. People just, they don't know what they're buying. And as Peter said, and I'll repost the clip, there's a great clip from Peter in 1994 in a, in a speech. He goes, they're buying it for one reason and one reason only, because that sucker's going up. They're momentum buyers. And it was going up too much for too long. And that's really, that the blame for that lays at the feet of the Federal Reserve. Because everyone's been trained in Pavlovian fashion now to buy the dip. And you buy the dip, and you buy the dip, and you buy the dip. And it kept working, and it kept working, and it kept working. Until one day, it's like the little boy that cried wolf. And guess what? The dip ain't bought. And the problem with that is, when you have price insensitive buying where there's no price discovery and let's say oil God does his work. He does, he's a good guy. And he's like, you know what? I'm only going to buy things that make sense or three aces. And it's like, you know what? Let those crazies pay that price. Uh, this doesn't make any sense to me. Once the price insensitive buyers done buying and let's, you know, let's just take, uh, I don't know, Tesla or whatever, or shop. Let's say Shopify. Oh, guy, okay, oh, okay, where's Shopify now? I'm not even sure I know where it is. Where, where's Shopify? It's under, it's 600, under 600, George. George. Okay, so shop. So, oh, God, well, what do you think is a fair price for Shopify, oh, God? Uh, probably uh, 200. 200. Okay, and how high did Shopify go? 2,000. 2,000. Okay, 2,000? You serious? You bet. You bet. I lost track. Okay, so oh, God's got a bid at 200. And the price keeps going up 300, 400, 500, 1,000, 2,000. He's like, now, he may have FOMO, but I suspect he kind of lights up a joint to kind of cure himself of the FOMO. But whatever. If he's got discipline, he's saying, eh, the hell with it. If he's a know nothing and is jealous because he's at a cocktail party and all his neighbors are buying Shopify or some similar merchandise, he'll get sucked in. But he doesn't know what he owns. He bought it for one reason, one reason only. This is a hypothetical shot. Uh, oh, God. Because it was going up. And now when it starts going down, like, what's he going to do? Oh, he should sell because it's going down. And the problem I have with the market, so much of the investor base is of that ilk. And they've been trained stocks for the long term. Jeremy Siegel, stocks only go up. Oh, if I sell, I have, you know, I'm uh, going to have to pay taxes. If I sell, i got to figure out when, they got, when to get back in. Blah, 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 blah. And so what happens is they don't sell. And Michael Green has correctly pointed out the passive bid, the ongoing inflows. And he's been right. But it doesn't give you any clue as to when the worm is going to turn. It may be turning. I think it is turning. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I think those price incentives to the buyers, they're going to be the bag holders. Think about it. You know, the average stock is down 40% or wherever it's down. Indices or, you know, S&Ps or whatever it is, 10% down from its highs. NASDAQ is worse. So, But the average stock is down a lot more than the indices. And think about all the damage that's been inflicted on Shopify and Kathy Woods and all this other garbage. And that's with all the inflows. We've only seen two weeks of outflows. Could you imagine how much the market's going to go down? If the passive bid goes into reverse, can you just imagine? So my question to everyone in the room, what I would ask everyone is, 
you know, what is the expected? Do you think it's a good bet on an expected churn basis to say, okay, George, you're wrong. You know what? I'm not going to sell because you're wrong. And I'm going to prove that you're wrong. And the market's going to be flat. It's going to be a stock picker's market. And as I put in a tweet just earlier this morning, whenever you hear it's a stock picker's market, as John Roker was here, he's not here anymore. It's his line. He goes, when it's a bull market, you never hear anybody say it's a stock picker's market. They say it's a stock picker's market when nobody's making any money. And that's what's going on right now. And CNBC and the street and all the fakers in, 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 in Twitter and everybody else sells a four-letter word. I, I argue, I argue if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Go to cash. If you're half crazy or a pro and can stomach it, you know, short something. Or even if you don't want to go to cash, like if you say to me, hey, George, you know what? I want to sell something because I'll have to pay a lot of taxes. Okay, fine. So why don't you buy some put options on something else to hedge yourself? Why don't you go market neutral? I got into a long discussion the other day. I'm not going to mention his name. The bad boy knows who it, who it is. Mr. Detroit bad boy. This guy does really, really good work. I don't have the, I have no, I'm old enough now. I don't have the patience for detail to go that deep on the work. So I will cede the knowledge advantage to him on any individual stock. So this is a stock. I'll tell you the name of the stock. It's Cornet, K-R-N-T. Uh, they make, they have this thing for automated, they have this automated t-shirt thing where basically uh, you'll be able, they can produce t-shirts that can come up. Oil God wants to come up with a Canadian Oil Mafia t-shirt. He just sends the design to them and they have this special fabric and computing thing, this CAD cam thing. They can make t-shirts with a special procedure just like that. And the oil guy says, you know what? We don't need 10,000. We only need 100. Or Sohaib says, no, we only need 50. Sohaib, by the way, is in the third third row. He is the uh, he's the head of the Canadian oil mafia. So they can just push a button, and there go the T-shirts. So Corny, it's a great, stock, great company. Great company. But there's a difference between a company and a stock, and people forget that. So Corny went from like, I first heard about it, it went from 15. I think it went to 180. So much to look it up. It's K-R-N-T. And the PE went from like nothing to, I don't know, 200 or something crazy like that. Well, we had a discussion the other day at 70. He calls me up. He's like, what do you think of Cornette? And I had told, at 150 we had the discussion. I said, listen, it's a, good on you. This is a great story. But you've been overpaid for this idea. This valuation makes no sense. Uh, I think the estimates for this company from memory Something like a dollar ten. This is a real company, okay? A dollar. And by the way, I think these may even be non-gap earnings, not even gap earnings, but just humor me for the sake of the argument, luster purposes. A dollar ten this year and a dollar fifty next year, and he's convinced that in twenty twenty six they're going to make five dollars, okay? But I'm like, I'm like, dude, the stock's at one hundred and fifty. It's one hundred and thirty times this year's earnings. It's a hundred times next year's earnings. It's only growing 25% a year. What are you doing paying, paying, paying 100 times earnings? Are you nuts? Well, you know, da 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 I said, do you realize that you're implicitly buying, you know, a, a long-duration bond when you're buying this thing? It's, it's like, look at the volatility, you know, 30-year zero. Well, you know, it's got good management, and if I sell it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, that was three months ago. Nothing's changed. He calls me the other day. Nothing's changed except one thing, the price. It's now 70 I said, dude, that's not his name. I just don't want to give up his real name. I said, dude, like, eh, what can I tell you? I mean, look at look at the chart of the 30-year zero. 
Look at how much that's gone down. Look at the chart of the Austrian 100-year bond and see how much that's gone down. When you buy a long-duration asset like this or Shopify or Tesla or Kathy Woods, you're buying an embedded 100-year, you know, 30-year, 100-year bond. People don't understand that. So people talk about the earnings and the sales and what a great company is and great management. And you have cognitive bias because participant bias because you own it, so it has to have good management. That's not the point. The point is about liquidity. It's about interest rates. And that's why we have Michael Howe come into the room. So I told him right now, I said, look, at 70, they're going to make a $1.15 this year, $1.50 next year. It's still 45 times earnings. It's a great company. I've seen the company two or three times myself. Again, this is not investment advice. Do your own work. I said, if you tell me, I mean, I believe rates are going higher. If rates are going to three and a half, let's say in the 10-year, I'm reasonably certain this stock is going to go down to 50. He's like, well, what should I do? I said, well, if you're convinced it's a good stock, why don't you just short Kathy Woods against this or buy puts on Kathy Wood or puts are too expensive, buy a put spread. So at least you don't have to pay the capital gains on selling Cornet. And in any and all scenarios, you would expect Cornet to outperform Kathy Woods. So all I'm saying is people have been have been hypnotized, become uh, complacent by this ever-running, long-running bull market, this endless sea of liquidity. It's sort of that Minsky moment, and I think that's kind of where we are, but do your own work. So, you know, I could be totally wrong. Wouldn't be the first time, won't be the last time, but that's just my two cents. Oh, God, do you have a response? And I want to go back to Christine. George, uh, Thank you. Uh, sorry. Sorry. sorry, George. Sorry, George. George. Uh, okay. George, can you move George, can your, you mic? Move you're your mic? You're repeating yourself. yourself. You're, you're repeating uh, oil guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Illy. So, listen, I wanted to actually just pair everything you're saying um, with the conversation that happened a little bit earlier. And I obviously sound extreme because it's 10 in the morning on the West Coast. And I know, George, I have not wake and baked, as we call it here. But really what you're alluding to is the fact that people, if you want to protect your money you have to start thinking away from the herd and where the herd is going to get hurt. And I think another thing that um, goes, you know, so I hear one sec, invite, oh, sorry, thank you, George, making me a co-host. One second here. Sorry, George is like DMing me. It's like you're coming on to me, George. Just give me a second while I accept your advances. Um, okay. oh, 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 God, you, you love when I hit on you. Sorry, go ahead. Yes, no, of course, George. Thank you. We told you not to make this public, but nonetheless. Okay, so what you're saying, George, makes absolute sense, right? Don't follow the herd with your stock portfolio. And also think about the question with respect to real estate. And then think about who's tied into who and how that works. And I'll take you back to 2008. And George, you remember this. When the stock market imploded, there were obviously stocks that got absolutely trounced, went down 50, 60, 70, 80%. And then they're the ones that outperformed. And the ones that outperformed that would surprise many people on the call today would be things like Hugo Boss, Tiffany and Company. Why? Because the people who have that kind of money who purchase those kind of you know, products, they're not largely affected by interest rate moves. They're not living paycheck to paycheck. And so no matter what we are all thinking, you need to protect yourself and your portfolio away from the most vulnerable, which includes real estate. I think condominiums, long-dated condominiums, pre-sale condominiums have been completed yet. And now our friend of the Canadian oil mafia, Abe, is, is, is spoken about this at length. Those things are going to get crushed because when heating bills with your food bill plus your mortgage bill all goes up at the same time, those are the people that are the most vulnerable to needing to make a lifestyle change, right? And so 
The same thing happens with a stock portfolio. If you didn't know how to invest, well, what are you told to do? You're told to go and buy a mutual fund, an, an exchange-traded fund. If you you know you don't want to invest with mom and dad's guy, and you want to have a you know a fearless portfolio that just tracks what everybody else is going to buy. Well, remember, the more you're tied to everybody else, the more you're tied to the volatility. And I'm going to tie this into what you know. This is all cute past performance bullshit. This is and this is not what I want. But if you're all on the internet like I am, and you're seeing Twitter, and you're seeing videos from the United States of America, what you're seeing is desperation. And you're already seeing it. I saw a video the other day of a couple walking into a restaurant at gunpoint, literally going table to table, stealing the food off of people's plates and leaving. I saw another video in America where a woman comes out of the grocery store literally parks her buggy in front of her car, opens a trunk, somebody comes and accosts her, and another woman comes, puts her car next to the other car, and starts stealing her groceries. Folks, we're two fucking months into this war with Ukraine and inflation. And so where am I going with all this? Think of what an electric vehicle symbolizes in the next one to two years. We all know the prices of them are going up, you know, forget Elon Musk and the fraud. And I know three aces myself. Many of us all agree there's a lot of bullshit there. We all saw what happened with Rivian. You know, they needed to increase the prices. People freaked out. They said, fuck that. And obviously the stock got hurt. But I want you to fast forward with me. Let's all smoke the joint together. Okay. <sighs> ah, fantastic. Now we're all on a voyage. It's two years away. Okay. George, you're a little, you, you look better than ever. You age like a fine wine somehow. Right. And so we're all looking at the news and we're seeing electric vehicle lineups because there's more on the road. Who can afford them? The people that are wealthy. Why are they charging them? Because they ran out of electricity. Right. Forget the 55 percent backed by coal and fossil fuels. And this is not what I want. But what these people are signifying is the sitting ducks from a safety perspective, because you can't move. That's why you're waiting to charge your electric vehicle. And somebody with a gas and a gun literally could come and put you and your family at risk, whether it's theft or God knows worse. And I'm not looking for this, but I'm just telling you, electric vehicles could actually do even more social harm than you probably even a price. Right. In so, so, or God, brilliant. Just so you know, um, I don't want to go down an electric vehicle rabbit hole. We're going to have Gordon Johnson come here one of these days to go down that rabbit hole. But, um, there is so much ignorance around CO2 emissions. You know, and I'll just, I'll just put this fact out there. It's not an opinion. It's a fact. This is a fact. You're entitled to your own opinions and not entitled to your own facts. If the entire oil, if the entire automobile fleet was replaced with electric vehicles tomorrow, tomorrow, the entire automobile fleet, it would result in approximately a 10% decline in CO2 emissions. 10%. That's all. Despite the trillions of dollars that we require to do that. So, you know, I'm all for green and, and, and a healthy planet, but there's been so much misinformation put out there that I think as we are, as Europe certainly is, is out in front, running, not walking headlong to an energy crisis, self-inflicted. I'm hoping that there'll be a re-examination of this issue. However, I fear 
it will only occur once we have a full-blown crisis. Um, let me ask a general question before. I know Brian's got his hand up, but I want to, and, and Paul hasn't spoken yet, but I haven't been exactly with the bullish persuasion, as many of you know, the last few months. I'm not a perma-bear, but I am a skeptic or a cynic. And I come into these rooms, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not totally neutral. I state my opinions, but I try to offer up facts as to why. I would invite anybody in this room to try to cheer me up and tell me why I'm too bearish. Because I come into this room, there's a ton of smart people in here, and I'm always learning in these rooms. I learn from you. And I listen to you. One of the things I like of listening to others, it takes my own personal thinking, which is a personal hell. And I listen to you, and I just get more bearish. Could someone please raise their hand and come up and give me the bullish case and tell me about why the equity market, you know, why I'm too negative, all right? Because um, I'm having a hard time. I'm having a hard time getting there. I mean, every it's like, you, you know, it's always as Stan Weinstein says, you look at the cards coming out of the deck as they come out, as at the margin of information, more bullish, less bullish, whatever. And I just get more negative by the day. So with that, I want to go to Paul and then Brian and then Marcellus. Paul? Hey, George. Thanks for having me or letting me up. A uh, couple of points. I think I, I, I probably try and answer or not answer, at least uh, express my thoughts on what you just said. But before that, we, we, we all talk about oil, oil, and oil, and no doubt about it. You know, that grabs most of the headlines. But let's not forget natural gas. This country runs more on gas, or at least as much in gas as in oil. We consume about 16 million barrels equivalent of natural gas every day um, against the, you know, the 20 or so uh, bottom line number in oil. So it is, it is as much a significant uh, impact to sort of, you know, the Johnny Lunch bucket, which we all are at the end of the day, on on inflation and everything else that goes with it. And what's happening in the gas space is, I'm not sure what the right word is, is it travesty or is it just, uh, I mean, we're, we're about to build this plethora of LNG terminals. And uh, we've gone from $3 or so or 3 and 4 We've doubled to maybe 6 and 7 Europe's paying 20, 30 bucks. There's no reason they'll ever pay anything below 15 to 20 dollars because you know that's where other fuel switching comes in. But the bottom line is if we go to 10 dollars and stay there, this is catastrophic for for the common man, uh, not just from uh, an energy perspective, heating bills, uh, electricity bills, food, I mean you name it. Um, oil is just about filling gas in your car. But this, as I said, this has a much, much bigger stealth impact. Yes, there's money to be made, no doubt about it. And, you know, I'm sure people smarter than me know how, how to make money on this. And, and, and that's what I do for a living. But nonetheless, that's, you know, that's one thing that we all should should remember, uh, which is even a more bearish case uh, to, to, your, to your point. And the bullish case, uh, again, I'm not an expert on, on currencies here, um, even though I've traded them and, and I watched them. Look, ultimately, the Fed's going to relent. They have to. There's no doubt about it. These currencies, um, you know, when I look at the yen, uh, we all know the story here. I'm not going to repeat it. But eventually, uh, this is just my opinion, um, the strength of the dollar really has, uh, you know, some some very transient arguments to it. Ultimately, it'll go the way of, I'm not sure which currency. Is it the yen? Is it the euro or what? 
and um, you know for now we're the the cleanest shirt in the in the laundry i guess um and once that goes you know i mean what do you do when everything's debased uh you have to own something you cannot own cash it's it's going to get debased a lot and uh, so i'm not saying that that's the bullish argument i'm certainly not betting on that uh thesis uh but eventually uh, in a time will come when uh, a, a, the currency will become a bigger part of uh the the topic of discussion uh that's all i had appreciate it man thank you thank you for that paul really appreciate it all right let's go to brian and then marcellus brian yeah hey george um just thanks so much for hosting these spaces they've just been great um and i've just loved listening to every word um so i actually have a question for either you or just uh, uh space in general um so I'm in agreement with, you know, what we talk about a lot about the oil stocks and the commodities and all those kind of things being a good play here. Um, but then on the other hand, sometimes we talk about stuff, you know, you, I hear you say a lot that equities are um, return free risk right now. And we're also currently today, we've been talking about, you know, liquidity and tightening. And, you know, the last couple of days, this big sell off we had. So, I'm wondering, at least in the near term, um, do you have any opinion on how the tightening and liquidity issues will affect, um, you know, stocks across the board like oil and commodities? So people who've been in this room know that I'm generally negative on things. But in particular, I've been most negative on the things that are most liquidity, most susceptible to changes in liquidity and rising interest rates. So long duration to short duration, generally value over growth, commodities over stocks, commodities over short duration assets. So in that context, my only longs this year have been energy stocks and some gold. I have a little feeling a few gold stocks. They're not doing so well the last few days. I'm talking about that. So if you actually, if you ask me between now and the end of the year, like, you know, what's going to happen to oil stocks? I expect energy prices to go higher. The only way they're not going to go higher is if we get a full-blown recession. I don't know if the Europeans are going to go through with it. But keep in mind, this was the week they threatened they're going to implement full embargo against Russian energy, Russian oil. And oil demand tends not to fluctuate as much as just changes in supply, which are much more important than changes in demand. Demand goes up and down a little bit, but supply, which takes years to change. It's only been three years in the last 50 that all demand's gone down. So the Delta has always been supply. Obviously, 2020 with COVID, that was one of those years. It was a big collapse in demand. So the issue really is supply. Always has been, is, will be. And if you were in the Mike Roffin or Eric Nuttall rooms the last couple of weeks, I think it's only, unless we have a big recession, which I don't expect, it's only in the next few months you're going to see people starting to worry about how much excess capacity does OPEC have. In recent months, OPEC has been unable just to even keep up with the quotas. So that's a tell. Which is why, when we come back to what the Fed is doing, we have an inflation problem. How much of it is because of the pandemic? 
How much of it is because of monetary policy? How much of it is because we're running out of, you know, there's been massive underinvestment in extractive industries. The Fed can't do anything about that. Ditto for, you know, agricultural products. So you could have a situation, and I think it's pretty good chance it's going to happen. It's my opinion. Do your own work. That we get a slowdown. Detroit Bad Boy was talking a little while ago about the abrupt decline in uh, transaction volume at PayPal and Wayfair. I also was doing some work, was in contact with a very large consumer products company you would know. It's a company like Weber Grill. They make a considerable consumer durable. And in that switch in consumption from consumption to goods, their business boomed during the pandemic. Well, they're seeing their orders fall apart as well. So I could totally see where the economy slows down. And we go into a slowdown. Maybe it's a mild recession. So I'm not going to argue about that. But what it means for inflation is not entirely clear to me. The permabulls would have you believe inflation is going to go down. No problem. Rates go down. Blah, blah, blah. Goldilocks is back. Let's have we ever after. Shopify is good to go. Buy Tesla. Buy Kathy Woods. And we're good. I think more likely is a scenario where you get you get a you get a slowdown in the economy. You certainly get an earnings slowdown, if not earnings recession. Maybe we get an economic recession. The way these things work, everyone's going up and down, yelling, waving their hands up and down about oh, you know, flattening yield curve, this, that, whatever, recession. Everyone's a yield curve expert. Well, when I read that stuff, they usually say it's like a lag or like twelve months or something like that. But What's more important than whether we get a technical definition of a recession, I don't want to get into an IQ contest about that. That's not what this is about. What's happening to earnings and what's happening to interest rates? And I think earnings are going to come under pressure. They're starting to roll. Michael Kantrowitz has spoken eloquently on that. And I think rates are going to remain elevated. I think they're going higher from here, actually. But so a combination of rates not coming off, earnings rolling, increasing uncertainty, the geopolitical risk, who the heck knows what goes on. It's just, it's all downside and no upside. So coming back to the question, I'm kind of rambling here. I think energy is going to do well, certainly relative to Kathy Woods. My favorite trade, I recommended this going back to last summer. You know, you can go look at my Twitter feed. It was a long XOP short arc. I stopped looking at it. I don't know if it's up 200% or 250%. It's, it's, it's absurd. I think there's more where that can't come, where that comes from. As recently as two or three weeks ago, I was saying I thought that could go another 100% before year-end. So to me, the, the risk on the oil stocks is a generalized market decline. So, yeah, I took some licks this past week. Overall, for the week, I think I was kind of flat. I mean, you know, early part of the week, I was making some decent money. The oil stocks are doing great. You know, Kathy Woods was not doing so great. And then I got schmiced the last couple of days because the energy stocks took it on the chin. But... So long and short of it is, in a generalized market decline, there's no place to hide. And these, in the oil stocks, yeah, the short duration, but the perception will be that oil prices will go down, and therefore, you know, earnings estimates will go down, and blah blah blah. So they'll probably get hit. But that's not where the that's the energy is relative strength in the market. It's what you want to buy. So I own energy stocks. I'm not going to talk names. 
you know, I own some of the Canadian ones, more of the American ones, for all the reasons that Oil God and Marcellus was spoken about and others. And, but I'm also short a lot of the garbage. So I kind of have a, I'm hedging the market. Because the market, I think the market goes down. And so if the market goes down, say, say the S&P goes down, you know, to 3,500, just making up a number, which is t- totally, in fact, if you said to me, George, you know, how low do you think the market's going to go? Just to, just to sort of contextualize my bearishness, not holding me to a one-point forecast, but you know, the S&Ps, wherever it is, 4,300, I've lost track. Is it going to 4,000? No, it goes lower. 3,800, lower. I don't know. So, yeah, I could easily 30, see 3,500. And in that context, I expect everything to go down, including the energy stock. So I hope that answers the question. Uh, Christine, um, the floor is yours. What's up, Christine? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of chime in because uh, a couple speakers ago had expressed some concern over the price of natural gas. And um, my take on the situation is, is that the price of natural gas has simply been catching up, up to oil on where it needed to be. So traditionally, you know, you could, you know, we've kind of valued things as as oil sh- or sorry as natural gas should be about one twelfth the cost of of um, oil so if oil hundred you know I was and the money wars occurring in the world natural gas has basically been treated like a waste product and and that's why it was trading so low and you know getting I mean not even really getting disposal value for the natural gas like it was actually more valuable to reject it and and help support the pressure drives of your reservoirs than it was to sell it and and now and and, and during that same time that natural gas was like super cheap you know we were continuing to do a bunch of coal to natural gas power shifting so so over you know the past decade we've actually been increasing the value of of natural gas but it wasn't being seen in the market because of the price wars and and now all of that uh churn is working its way out of the system so so yeah i mean i believe you know seven eight dollars um is is kind of like a right price for natural gas now what's happening in europe is is truly you know a travesty that they're having to pay 20 and 30 but that's also their own their own fault because because of the they're not doing deals and then not doing interest in the United from America is that we kind of fall into that same uh, catechism because although we do have more than enough natural gas in the ground to support us, what we don't currently have is enough pipelines, and um, and and it's just like we're like states and and um, you know and and our federal government. They're not giving out the, the land use permits and things like that so that's needed in order to, to put a pipeline into play. So, so soon we're going to almost start bottlenecking ourselves on, on our natural gas uh, production if we don't start getting you know, more pipelines built. So, so that's just kind of something to think about um, you know, in terms of what's been going, going on with natural gas. You know, these past. Uh... So, Christine, can you hold on for one second? Christine, just hold on for one second. Christine, Six hold on for one second. Christine, it... hold on. Hold on. Uh... Oil. But, but point forward. Right. Yeah, Christine, could you just hold on for one second? Christine, hello? Well, God, can you hear me okay? I can, can hear you, George. Christine, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah, Christine was unfortunately cutting out. Sorry, George. 
Yeah, so Christine, if you could just hold it, because we can't really hear you very well, and you're cutting in and out. So, Christine, if you could just hold it, please, until you maybe log out and log back in, because the, the connection is really bad. Um, that would be helpful. Um, uh, let's see. Um, guiding Hand, did you have a question? Guiding Hand, welcome to the room. What's up, Guiding Hand? Guiding Hand? Hey, George, uh, just quick question. So you mentioned that... Uh... You use a hedge through Arc. I'm just wondering on your thoughts of using a different hedge through either a small cap uh, ETF like IWM or potentially like a single individual tech stocks. Because uh, right now, uh, how I see it, uh, a lot of the damage has already been done in the growth sector. And uh, in the rising rate environment, uh, there might come a time where small caps might perform even worse than the tech stocks. I think um, each one, I, I don't want to get drawn into individual ideas. Instead, we try to teach people how to fish instead of giving them a fish. Each one of those instruments has a different risk reward profile. When I was speaking about Cornet earlier, the fellow with whom I was having a discussion, we had spoken a few months ago about this. And he actually, I think, shorted a little bit of IWM as a hedge against his Cornet. But he didn't listen to me. I told him to do ARC because I was worried about interest rates and long duration. So instead, he shorted IWM, and that wasn't a very good hedge. IWM is really kind of a mess. It really is a very dirty ETF. It's got all types of garbage in there, GameStop, AMC, all this stuff. So, And then when you start getting into individual stocks, you got to know the particulars. So it's a seemingly simple question you ask, but the answer is much more complicated. Um you know, if you know, heretofore, ARC has gone down more because it had the longest duration and had the highest beta. If we're now going to go to a move, go to a move, move to an area where we're talking about a possible recession coming down, and you think rates aren't going to go up so much more, it may well be the case that you'd rather be short the S and P or the Russell. But you have to think about what are you trying to hedge against? Are you trying to hedge against a generalized market decline? So if it's cyclicals more generally, yeah, do the S&P or the Russell. Or is it more interest rate risk? Then do ARC. So it really depends what you're trying to hedge against. And everyone's got to have their own idea about that. I mean, Oil God has been pretty public about his uh, short on Shopify, and he's killed it. He's killed it twice, actually. He shorted it, covered it, made money, went back up, shorted it again. And so that's because he really has a view on Shopify, and so if you have a view on a particular stock that you want to be short, that's fine. But I'm not going to get sucked into, well, what stock would you short? It's just not what we're doing this from. Thank you for the question. Seth, did you have a question? Seth? Hey, George. As, as always, great room. I, I, one question and one, one comment, perhaps. Uh, I, I think you, you asked, uh, you were reflecting, perhaps, which is an area of, of the market which might be exciting, exciting at this point in time. I think, I think to paraphrase you, I think there's, if, if you read Seth Klarman's letter, Seth, uh, Seth Klarman, who, who you don't know, some, some people might not know, he's, he's, the, he's the guy who runs PowerPost, which is the, one of the biggest distressed uh, investor firms in the world. I mean, his, his, his view is, obviously, he's, he's as scared as us, right, in, in terms of where the market is heading. But, but but they are sitting on 40, 50% cash at the moment, right? Because they see this as a massive opportunity as volatility picks up to, to buy some uh, buy some assets at, at cheap. Uh, just just to give you some perspective, right? Uh, Balpo's invested at the, at the height of Lehman crisis, about $10 billion. 
uh, and made annualized return of 8% uh, for, for the last 12, 15 years, right? So uh, he, Seth, Seth, Seth Klarman obviously knows what he's doing. Uh, so that there will be opportunities like that in the market, I hope, coming up in the next sort of 6 to 12 months. Uh, I think the question I have, uh, George, perhaps is, is we, do, do you, we talked about peak inflation in the last couple of weeks. Do, do you think we, we are close to peak inflation or uh, is, is it just rhetoric? So good question. Let me say two things. First thing is Seth Klarman is a personal friend of mine. I've known Seth for 35 years, so I know Seth very well. Uh, Seth is very cautious, been cautious for a long while. It's interesting, though. You look at the, who the smartest guys in, in, uh, on the board are, whether it's someone like you know Howard Marks or Seth Klarman or Warren Buffett. They all have a lot of cash. That, that you know, watch what they do, not what they say. In some cases, they also say it. So the smartest guys in the room have cash, and you have charlatans like David Portnoy of Barstool Sports. I'm going to name names: Jim Cramer. Kathy Wood. I could go down the list. Come on in. Come on in. They're like carnival barkers. So, you know, if we're going to the schoolyard playing pickup basketball and you got Kathy Woods, Jim Cramer, and David Portnoy on one side, and Howard Mark, Seth Klarman, and Warren Buffett on the other side, who are you going to bet with? Okay, so that's my answer to that. Um, and, and what was the question? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm yeah, just, just just the idea on peak inflation. Do 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 you really think? Yeah, that you know, you know, I, I don't know, and I don't think it's the right question. I really don't think it's the right question because people say, well, you know, used car prices are rolling over, and you know, it was eight point two percent, and it's going to be eight point zero percent, and you know, to me, it's not whether it's peak inflation. Actually, I th- I think inflation could go higher. Believe it or not. So I answer the question too: Is a I'm not sure it's the peak. I mean, it could go higher because if Mike Rothman is right and oil is heading to 150 and food prices keep going up, and oh, by the way, housing prices are still accelerating, you just you just go down the list of what goes into the CPI. It's all going up still. So one, I'm not sure that it's peak inflation. In fact, I think it's going higher. But even if I said, okay, it's the peak. So let's say you say, oh, okay, George, good. You told me it's the peak. But then I say, not so fast. Let's say I told you inflation was still going to be six and a half percent by December still be a huge problem so whether it's the peak is not the right question the question is how sustainable is it and if inflation stays elevated six seven six five percent the next the next nine months it's still a problem so it, it still speaks to a negative liquidity environment so I don't think you're going to get really much respite for the equity market on the inflation picture I think another way of looking at it is Imagine when you keep a beach ball under the water for a long period of time and then you let go. The natural tendency is for it to rise. It goes back up to the surface. Well, that's the way I look at interest rates. They're now just going back to where they should have been all along. You know, even if you, even if the, how inflation is going to go down to 4%, which I think the Fed believes it's going to by the end of the year, I don't understand. But let's say it did. Let's say it did. You want to tell me a 2.9% 10-year long bond's a good deal? I don't think so. So it's not an academic discussion about, you know, are we having a recession? Well, no, what's more interesting is are we having an earnings recession? It's not, oh, has inflation peaked? No, it's will inflation come down? 
And I just, so no, I, I, I don't expect any respite from the bond market. That's why I answer that question. Does that answer your question, Seth? Yeah, I think so. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Okay. KFAB, you had, you had something you want to chime in, KFAB? <laughs> yeah, I, I wrote something about this this week. Um, I think that the two aspects that uh, really make the inflation forecasting business treacherous right now are um, how stupid politicians get. And I think we underestimate how bad that can get <laughs> at times. Um, so whether it's uh, the global financial war that's now commenced um, and potential cascading supply chain impacts. I mean, I don't think most people saw China, China locking down the way they have um, a month and a half ago. So who knows what's coming in the pipeline as far as um, additional supply chain um, damage that could be incurred. And then, you know, incentivizing consumption, price controls. I mean, there's a lot of things here as um, supply chain issues continue to impact and we get this potential global famine and, uh, you know, potential huge migration of people out of the Middle East and other impacted areas um, at Europe's doorstep. I mean, who knows what politicians are going to drag out in stupid ideas that could compound this stuff um, on an inter intermediate term basis. So I just, I, you know, even if you're bearish on the economy, normally the economy uh, beginning to contract is is deflationary or disinflationary, at least bringing an inflation rate down. I just think that uh, given how compressed things are globally, um, you know, politically and culturally, societal acrimony, all of these things, it's like a tinderbox. Um, and politicians can just go completely berserk, like we're seeing in Japan right now. I mean, that's why I keep yeah. saying, look at Japan. So, KFAB, I couldn't agree with you more. Excellent. And KFAB is a must-follow for you. Those, those of you who don't know him, he's very modest and humble, but I'm always challenged and by his thought-provoking insights. And, and KFAB, you're totally right. You know, right now, people can sit here and say, well, inflation's peaking, it's not peaking, based on what's what you're looking at right now. But is with respect to my Canadian friends, as your great hockey god Wayne Gretzky would say, go to where the puck is going, not where the puck is. So, you know, six months from now, if inflation is much higher because oil's at 150, or you know, natural gas is at 12, or wheat's at whatever 40, and people say, well, you know, our forecast would have been all right except for the fact that oil prices went up. Who knew? Who could have possibly expected that? So, again, there are a lot of known unknowns and unknown unknowns. The only thing that I know is that I don't know. And I urge everyone to approach markets with a similar degree of humility and doubt. All right, we're going to kind of wrap this up room short, this shortly. But before we before we do that, a few other people on the stage here. Again, I'm going to implore you. Uh, we've, uh, I think, raised 2500 bucks since in this room. Christine, we thank you for your $2,000 uh, match. I just ask you to please, when you make the contribution, please do it through our uh, link to World Central Kitchen so that our effort gets the credit for it. Um, I want to, I'm going to, I'm going to address Phil, but Phil, before you come up, I just want to warn you, not a threat, just a warning. We normally don't allow crypto oriented people speaking um, in this room, uh, simply because we find crypto to be a very polarizing uh, subject and those who like it, like it, and those who hate it, hate it. And it's rare that we get, no, you're not going to win any hearts and minds on either side. So if your question is something about other than crypto, you're welcome to speak. 
but if it's crypto related, um, we're not going to allow it. So, so Phil, the floor is yours. Thank you, George. No, that was not my question at all. And thanks for addressing that. It is pretty polarizing. There's a lot of nuance on this in this world. So last thing I want to do is make the room angry. So uh, I appreciate you coming up and I love all the rooms that you do. And my question, kind of a two-part question. I, I heard that the Fed was actually removing housing and um, mortgage, mortgage-backed securities off their balance sheet. And so I'm assuming that would cause maybe the price of housing and just like rent to possibly go down or at least people's value in their homes would decrease. So I don't know if, what your thoughts on that are. And then secondarily, I do agree that we could see higher inflation, but also interest rates would continue to go up, whether or not the Fed actually does raise 50 basis points per FOMC meeting. That is a, a question to ask and just kind of be on the lookout for as time goes on. But I, I guess with the U.S. debt being indexed as SOFR now instead of LIBOR, how do you think the Fed can actually, do you think the Fed could actually pull off raising those interest rates because of that new fact that has been officially like rolled out as of this year? So I'll, I'll just give you. Phil, hold on, hold on, Phil. You make a lot of interesting points, but I'm not sure I understand. What exactly is the question, Phil? I'm not sure what your question yeah, is. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So the first one is like, do you think housing is actually going to uh, continue to go down because the Fed removed MBSs off their balance sheet? And then second question, do you think the Fed can get away with raising rates with being with debt being indexed to, to SOFR? KFAB, do you want to take a shot at that? KFAB? Can I, George, can I, can I perhaps take a shot at it as well? We, yeah, right, so, so wait, hold, hold, hold on. Well, God, you go first and then KFAB. I, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of getting here. Well, oh, God, and then KFAB. Thank you. So I'm stepping out of the gym. Uh, the MBS market is not new. Uh, the MBS market was obviously created largely. Uh, the impact, obviously, from a headline perspective, was felt after 2008 when the housing market collapsed. And when the Fed purchases things to stabilize markets, they end up selling these things to some of the largest uh, asset managers. Like I know the Pacific Investment Management Company in Newport Beach, PIMCO, as you would call it here, Bill Gross's old firm. You know, they're huge buyers of the MBS market. And so, you know, it's just paper shuffling from one to the other. And the Fed literally was hand-holding the housing market like they were with banks and toxic assets. So I wouldn't use that as any indication of, of housing. Housing is an issue where you look at a K-shaped recovery. Uh, you know, co- uh, year 2008, which was V-shaped, everything, good, bad, rich, poor, entrepreneur, employed, everything went down like a V, and everything went up like a V in a sense. This COVID has created a K-shaped recovery. We all went down with the left side of the K. Those at the top continue to feel fine. Those at the bottom couldn't feel worse. And so when you have lots of money, cheap, and to George's point, you have cheap money for this long, right? That K, obviously, you get lots of participants there because you've got not only that real estate prices have gone up, equity prices have gone up. And now look at lots of people already in the K. What's happening with their income? Like if you're in tech, you're getting $100,000 offers to cross the street, right? And so what the problem with housing is there's just not enough supply to meet the demand of the K. Now, of course, you're very, very early. Come later in the cycle, obviously, if rates go up and lots of people at the top end of the K are new to money, they don't know how to balance the balance sheets and they're over-levered, you'll probably see a slowdown. But to be honest, in really, really nice parts of the world, I live in Vancouver, you, you know, you, you see prices... You see, um, for example, prices 
uh, or sorry, sales slow, but you don't see prices necessarily plummet. And this is uh, probably a lot to do with, again, a finite supply, very nice places that people want to live. With, you know, if you're in Shanghai right now, think about it, right? You're locked into an apartment that costs about two to three million US dollars. I mean, if they could tell you what two to three million dollars could buy you in Texas, I mean, these people would be leaving Shanghai tomorrow, and there's way more people there than anywhere else. So, George, I just will pass it back to you with just some of those comments or to KFAB. KFAB, over KFAB, you're. Yeah, I, um, I think if you look at what's going on in markets relative to the housing stocks, um, mortgage REITs like Redwood, which is a jumbo kind of private label um, mortgage originator, so not non uh, Fannie Freddie type stuff. Um, bank index, you know, pretty much at or starting to break the uh, February lows. Um, I think that the the stock market is screaming uh, or beginning to that. Um, that, that that's probably rolling over. And that's just intuitive relative to what's going on with rates and the refi index and, and various other things. I don't really have any expertise or insight on the, uh, the SOFR question. Thanks for that. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this room up shortly again. Um, this has been a great room. We start off with Michael Howe. And please, please, please give generously to World Central Kitchen. The link is up in the nest. We've raised over $3,000 today. In addition, Christine pledged a match of $2,000. So it's $5,000 for the room. Christine, again, I'd ask you to please use the link that we have provided rather than the one that you provided on Twitter, uh, just because we want to make sure that our efforts get credit. If you give on the link that you posted, we won't get credit. So please use the link uh, that we've posted. Um, that's awesome. Thank all of you. So I want to go to uh, Gilberto, and then we got two or three more, and then we're going to uh, call it a day. Gilberto, my friend, what's up? My friend, George. I'm very pleased to be here and to be listening to all of you. What I want to contribute uh, to the room is the bullish case you were asking for. Where is the bullish case in all this? And I have good news for you. But first of all, we need to acknowledge that the bullish case is after a brief and hard recession where rates are going to go much higher than what people think. And this is because you fear have to complete the liquidity crunch cycle of what Michael Howell has been talking to us and preaching to us and teaching us to see through the lines of the day-to-day -day price action. This, why? I say with this level of confidence that the bullish case is just after that brief recession. It's because what I've been sharing with this room um, from months ago, my life, my life through the this same scenario in Dominican Republic in the 2003-2004. We had the same type of situation with high inflation because of banking system uh, debt uh, crisis and monetary policy grew astonishingly. Um, credit certificates were paying like 50% in the peak of the crisis just to take money out of the other investment and being thrown into the central bank that was paying that higher credit uh, certificates rates and after 
uh, regime change, came some elections, 2004, the losing party went, went out of our power, we had a new president, and the national sentiment changed. And what happened was that after the change in the regime of the political cycle, we had a new easing faced on the monetary policy. And we grew steadily above 5% for a whole decade. Some years 8%, some years 7%. You can uh, search for it. It's called the Dominican Economic Miracle. It was not a miracle. It, as it, there's not the same way there is no geniuses, there's just cycles, the same way it's going to happen. And in this regard, my only advice is this is a bear market. The hardest, the hardest part, the hardest part is to stay out, to stay in cash is the same as say stay in dollars. I said in the past room, I participate. I think the right move is to go to dollars for EN participants, emerging market participants. The same thing I I think is the right choice for most of American participants. Gold dollars, gold gold, go gold. That means go cash because the beer market is going to affect all type of investments. And with this in mind, what I think we just need patience. We need patience. We need to wait for the cycle to end and don't fight the Fed. That's all I have to say. Gilberto, my friend, I love listening to you talk because it's just you speak with such earnest, sincere wisdom and years of experience. And I also enjoy the fact that you speak from the Dominican Republic, so it's a slightly different look on the world and will the experience that comes from having seen some really macroeconomic volatility where you come from. So it's really helpful. All right, we're getting towards the tail ends here. Um, is there anyone, I, I've kind of lost track here, is there anyone on stage who wants to ask a question? Uh, and while, because uh, I don't know if everyone's spoken, I've kind of lost track of who hasn't spoken. But again, before that, if, if you raise your hand, if you want to speak, again, uh, we've raised over $3,500 uh, without Christine's pledge, without with Christine's matching pledge is fifty five hundred. I'm really excited about the progress we're making. Our goal is two hundred thousand. I'm very hopeful that uh, we're our, our, our uh, again on Thursday. John Roke and I will be uh, co-hosting uh, the uh, uh, keynote speech at the CMT conference on Thursday afternoon at three thirty. That will be available to everyone through our YouTube channel. It will be free. I'm expecting that's also going to be a big. Uh, fundraising uh, occasion for us you know the folks at world central kitchen are doing god's work they're literally taking our life in their hands uh they got bombed on other organizations won't go in there because they're getting bombed on uh so you know everyone in this room is extremely fortunate and i i, I ask everyone to pay forward we do these rooms again i want to call out andrew and carol and rj and jack it wouldn't be possible without their help they, they do this all pro bono because it's their way of giving back. I do it. It's my way of giving back. And I ask, I ask you guys to give back and pay forward. Um, so with that, I don't know if anybody else on stage has any more questions. Anyone raise their hand? Otherwise, I think we're going to call this uh, a day. 
We're almost on three hours. Uh, these are really interesting times in markets. Our next session is going to be on Monday at 4 p.m. Don't miss it. Chris Verone, head of uh, technical research and strategy at Strategus, will be speaking to us. I have an endless backlog of top-notch institutional uh, speakers lined up for you. We've had about 25 of these rooms so far. I have another 125 in the wings. Yes, you heard that right, 125. And the list keeps getting longer. We've really created something very special here. And it's because of you. And I'm not saying this to just blow smoke up your backside. The reason people like Michael Kantrowitz come in this room, he, he didn't say this, but I'm guessing this is true, is because there are smart people in this room. He enjoys the dialogue. He learns from people in here. There are a lot of intelligent people in here. And, you know, Stan Weinstein, take him as an example. You know, I had to, when I first asked him to come in this room, he's giving me a hard time. Oh, you know, Jack Dorsey, Twitter, left-wing commie, blah, blah, blah. What is Twitter? Who needs this? Yada, yada. I finally convinced him to come into the room. He was swearing at me. He says, I'm only going to give you an hour. Well, he stayed in for two and a half hours. And not only that, he got a lot of business out of being in this room. He enjoyed himself. We learned a lot. He got more business. It's all good. And again, we've created something very special here. It's not me. Yeah, okay, I have the contacts. That's fine. But the reason people like, you know, Stan Weinstein and Michael Cantor is coming to this room is because of all the smart folks in this room like KFAB and Gilberto and Oil God, and that could go on and on and on. So I want to thank all of you. This has been a fabulous room. Michael Howell, I think at the top of the hour, just remember, be safe, be defensive. And I'll talk to you guys on Thursday, sorry, Monday at 1, at 4 p.m. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.